Hi, this is Lee with a quick note before we start the episode. At the end of today's podcast, we've got a very special interview with Moose Chick of moosechick.com. If you'd like to skip ahead to hear that, you can check the episode description for the exact time code. Thanks for listening, and let's get the show started. Bye-bye. What are you doing here? Huh, always that same question. All right, wait a minute. What, what's, what's going on here? What, what is this? I don't know. One minute I'm sitting in my study, working on my notes, and boom, there's this shaft of light. Shaft of light? You mean he or she whose name may not be on it? God. All right, a return appearance of Rabbi Shulman, played by Jerry Adler. Um, we just saw this rabbi in the last season, and he's already back again to bug Joel and, and his cabin in Sicily, Alaska. That's right. It's Yom Kippur for Joel Fleischman right here, which, okay, I feel really bad right now. When is Yom Kippur? It is usually in the fall. I mean, it's in the fall. It's, you know, the... Jewish religion goes along with this like Hebrew calendar or so it's like a different calendar than our, I guess you would call this like a Gregorian. Isn't our calendar like Gregorian that we normally mm-hmm. use? But uh, the the Yom Kippur in 1994, when this episode aired, I was looking this up before we started recording. Uh, that would have been in September. I think it was September 14th uh, or 15th, like the evening of the 14th and the morning of the 15th would have been Yom Kippur at that year. This year it was, um, I think it was later in September. I think it was like 24th or 25th or something. It was like towards the end of September. Oh, so it's a little bit like, uh, like it depends on the lunar cycle. I, that's like right. Mm-hmm. And okay. like Hanukkah this year will be also kind of coinciding with Christmas or Christmas falls within Hanukkah this year. Sometimes they don't overlap, but it's nice when they do. Nice. Yeah, I don't know anything about Yom Kippur. So this was like, yeah. okay, well, like I felt like I learned a lot, mm-hmm. but also I felt like, did I learn a lot? Cause I was like, <laughs> is this like, is this being intermingled with like Christmas? Cause you're using, right. <laughs> you're using a Christmas story. So I was like, are we just going like very liberal with the interpretation of this? What's going on? Yeah. We will have a lot to talk about that uh, when we dive in. But, uh, but yeah, if anything, it, it at least has, it's some uh, Yom Kippur awareness, you know, racist awareness of this Jewish <laughs> holiday, which I like. Well, Lee, what are we talking about here? We're talking about the television series Northern Exposure, 1990s CBS television series. Uh, was a huge hit at the time, or I guess like critically lauded. And I think, you know, commercially, you know, like the public loved it as well. However, it's kind of been lost, uh, thrown to the wayside. It's pretty difficult to watch this. It's like really only been available on DVD. Uh, there's some... VHS out there for a few episodes. Now they thankfully have some Blu-ray releases, uh, albeit I don't think there's any American Blu-ray release, Uh, but we've got our hands on the Blu-rays. That's how we're watching uh, for this season. And uh, we're the Northern Overexposure podcast. My name is Lee, and I'm always joined with my co-host, Charles. Yeah, this is my first time watching every episode with fresh eyes. Lee has seen this season once before. That's right, yeah. Which I'm curious to hear your thoughts on. Uh, Mm -hmm. because this one was predominantly flashback heavy. In fact, they (laughs) literally bring in a flashback using a television right here. 
I feel like we're going to do this a lot this season where we are going to probably front load our feelings. Yeah. Uh, to what we thought about this episode <laughs> because they're so, what is a friendly word to use? It's polarizing. Yeah. Like they're mm-hmm. so, uh, just like, I, I got to get it out there. Like immediately, <laughs> like as soon as we hit the record button. Well, we talked about, sorry to cut you off. We talked about this before, but this is the season that, I mean, I guess actually starting with last season because of the uh, change of executive producer, we've got David Chase now. Um, but I think I think even fans of Northern Exposure can agree that they did us dirty with this season. You know, it's not the not the greatest season in comparison. Um, yeah, I just wanted to get that in there. I, also, I know I'm cutting you off, so what, what no, were, no, what no, were no, you no, say? that's all right. Yeah, I mean, uh, did us dirty. <laughs> that's uh, kind of a good way to put it because I. I am struggling on the Joel plot line. I think that the other plot line involving the fox hunt yeah. actually went very well mm-hmm. because of the the subtext of tradition and what it represents for all of the characters. Yeah. And you can extend that to Joel as well. But in a different examination, though, I'm having difficulty understanding this plot line because... When they go through the flashback and they're showing all the sins that Joel's committing, he's not repenting enough. He repents at the end of those respective episodes. <laughs> it's not like he we, he never uh, becomes introspective and reflects on his actions and at the end and says like, "Oh, I realized I was a jerk mm-hmm. to Maggie, Ed, Holling, whatever." Like, let me apologize. Let me do something to make it up for them. I find it weird that they're using this, yeah, and then trying to paint Joel into this corner. And I also find it even more. Even more strange, in my opinion, was the idea or the notion that the townsfolk of Sicily would be that mean to Joel when he leaves. So, okay, so what you're describing first was, you know, Joel is rewatching these moments that happened in earlier seasons, uh, some of them kind of recently, in like season five. And it's all the nasty things he said before. And uh, I, I can't remember exactly, but I'm pretty sure you're right. Like by the end of each episode, he has a turn, you know, and so he acknowledges his faults, um, is a better person at the end of each episode, you know. So, so yeah, what you're saying is like, you know, Joel has already repented and kind of been forgiven for these outbursts that we're watching now. Um, I also, I wrote down in my notes that, well, I guess we'll get to this, but that that sequence when he's like watching the basically the clip show of past um, his his past uh, I wouldn't say sins, but off, offenses maybe. Mm-hmm. It was like okay, so this is kind of like this episode is kind of like a way to undo all the horrors that Joel committed like last season because we talked about how he's kind of not specifically Joel, but Joel amongst other characters have gotten meaner and crueler to each other. So are they trying to undo what they were doing in season five by making him so nasty in those moments? Um, though I think some of those moments maybe came before season five as well in, in this little clip show thing. Um, and then what was your second point there? You were saying... Um, oh, I was saying that like the townsfolk yeah. leave him high and dry. Which is like, I find this very hard to believe. I was taking that as like, if Joel continued down the path, then that would be the outcome. But it's also hard to say, because technically he's, I'm assuming we're in season five, which means he's in the fifth year of his uh, quote unquote indentured servitude here to the state of Alaska. That means he'd have to really screw it up for that last year, because he's supposed to be here six years in total. So. (laughs) 
Yeah. Right. So he has spent these five years. I mean, you know, of course, he had a little bit of a rough landing on years one and two. But then we saw him grow into the town, accept the eccentricities of the of the cast and adapted to the rural lifestyle and the philosophical ways in which they look at life. I feel like the townsfolk <laughs> accept Joel at this point. Oh, for I sure. I find it yeah. so weird that they would say like, and once he leaves, they're gonna they're gonna kick him to the curb. It's yeah. gonna be terrible. It's like I don't buy this. I could only buy this if it was in season one or two. You're right. You can't be rolling this out at the end of season five. I, I think my problem with this entire thing is that they wanted to do the Ghost of Christmas Past, which is you know the, the, it's been done plenty of times. Right. I get it. It's an enticing idea to do. I, I they should have like twisted it. They should have gone like one step further, or as a yeah, character yeah, yeah. examination, you left it like this, where it's like th- it doesn't work after so much character development for Joel. Yeah, the way the town treats him there. The only way I bought that was it's like that's got to be some trickery from this Rabbi Shulman, uh, ghost of uh, Yom Kippur to come or whatever. Like that's his own way of tricking Joel into repenting or becoming a good person. But yeah, it, it doesn't, it doesn't really fit very well. Um, it's a fun frame idea, I guess. But then also at the end of the day, it's just like the story already wrote itself. It's just a Christmas Carol, but Yom Kippur. Like they don't really, as you're saying, they don't really go too much farther from that. Like they don't expand on that too much. No, it follows the same exact <laughs> beats. There's absolutely nothing different yeah. to it. And, and granted, it's like a you know, it's a popular thing to use, a device to be like, you're going to see your past actions that you see the present you, and then we go to the future you, and then you repent, and you go back, and you become a better person. Like, I get that. Mm-hmm. And they added a little Yom Kippur <laughs> flavor to it. Um, but um, It's a big fault of, the, of this episode, I'd say, is that it pretty much is like an already packaged story from Christmas Carol. Yeah, and I just don't see how, how many episodes are we going to get <laughs> where Joel is learning to love the the town. <laughs> I, I just true. don't get this. It's, already, it's been, it's kind of a, they're beating the same dead horse. Uh, I gotta also, I'll just say I'm, I'm very appreciative that we have some Yom Kippur recognition at least, but, um, but I wish it were a little bit better. Like I've, I've talked before that there's been some holiday episodes of, uh, Northern Exposure. In fact, we just did a Patreon episode on the Halloween episode of Northern Exposure, Jewels at Joel, um, so yeah, if you'd like to hear that, we've got a Patreon. I guess I should chill for that for a second. Uh, <laughs> patreon.com slash Northern Overexposure Podcast. Every month we release a bonus episode, something adjacent to Northern Exposure. This one was sort of more like a reevaluation of a past episode that we did, um, Jules at Joel. But yeah, I feel like they've done some pretty interesting things. I really, really love the Thanksgiving episode of Northern Exposure. I think it's the best Thanksgiving episode of any television series ever honestly i mean i'm like definitely like maybe too obsessed with northern exposure but yeah i i agree i think that thanksgiving episode is uh fantastic it's a great episode of television i i was just mulling it over in my head and i was saying like okay well if you want to stick with the christmas carol Mm -hmm. you want to stick with that format what could you have done with it and i think the the moment that stuck out to me that hooked me into this uh little device was when they looked at Marilyn. And they said, like, well, look at, like, her perspective because, you know, she had to take care of other people in different places and Joel didn't realize that. And it was a communication problem right there. And Joel even says it at the end when he meets up with her. He says, Mm -hmm. okay, well, like, we just need to communicate better and set our schedules align 
and then we can go forward with there. I, I like I buy that even by season five, I buy that like these two would not see eye to eye on time management skills. And I think that had you framed it in this way, and then if you it's not like Northern Exposure is afraid of playing with tropes. I think if you took that one step forward and he said, like, what if Marilyn was also seeing through a ghost, like a mm. Christmas ghost? Yeah, she was visited by something as well. Yeah, and they meet together oh, at, like, that fun. ghost of Christmas future where it's both Joel's yeah. and Marilyn's. And they realize, like, oh, we both, like, okay, we weren't we weren't talking it out on how things should go for holidays and when we should do these things. And then you could have done like a little immersion between there and then flip the script on there. I think that could have been way more interesting on a writing perspective and as a theme as well. Yeah, I actually like that a lot, too, because I love seeing I because I do believe it, too, even though we don't get a lot of response from Marilyn. But I believe that Joel loves Marilyn and she loves him back, too. You know, I really Mm -hmm. want to believe that. I love episodes with them together. And the resolution of this Joel and Marilyn squabble is pretty easily written. It's just kind of like spoken aloud and it's fine. We should really start diving in though. Let's dive into this uh, yeah. this episode. It's called Shofar So Good. So that's a nice little pun with the shofar being the uh, horn that you blow into for Yom Kippur. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what this, I mean, you do that a lot. I feel like you also do it in uh, for Rosh Hashanah, which is the the Jewish New Year. So if you're, I mean, they kind of explain in this episode, but Rosh Hashanah comes at the New Year and then you have something like 10 days to get your accounts in order, repent before the gates of prayer are closed and like the whole next year of your life has been like sealed and determined. So you want to make a good case for yourself before that happens. And the blowing of the shofar, that horn, um, I know they do it uh, at the end of the... I guess uh, what you would call the, like not the mass, but the ceremony in uh, when you're at synagogue or whatever, they'll blow that at the end. Um, maybe that's a benediction. I don't know. That's probably also a very Christian um, term. You can tell I haven't been to a synagogue in a while. <laughs> I'm mixing. I think that's like really so, cool that like yeah. this blow this like trumpet like horn to signal the end. It's very hard to do too. Like they'll let kids try it. They'll have a, you have like different sizes too. And um, Rabbi Shulman in this episode says you got to have a really good embouchure to do that. And mm-hmm. I mean, you played uh, trumpet, Charles, so you might understand, but imagine just like a horn with no mouthpiece, just like a hole that you have to blow into. Yeah, no, that's, that's so difficult right there. Uh, well, before we start getting into it, why don't we talk about the director and the writer of the episode? Yeah, the director is James Heyman, who, uh, what do you know? He directed Jules at Joel, hmm. and he also directed uh, Lovers and Mad Men, which was the season five finale. Uh, he's going to continue to work in season six. Uh, the writer was Jeff Melvoin, who's written a lot of Northern Exposure. You'll recognize some of his credits here, Democracy in America. Um, he wrote the doubleheader Ill Wind and Love's Labor Mislaid, Cottage for Uncle Manny, a very uh, popular episode, Una Volta in Inverno, Fish Story, which was the other Rabbi Shulman episode, and Lovers and Mad Men. Uh, again, so the episode that James Heyman directed last so yeah, I mean, like th- this seems like your man for um, 
for writing anything with uh, Joel's like Jewish heritage with the Kaddish for Uncle Manny, Fish Story, now this Yom Kippur episode. Um, finally, air date, October 3rd, 1994. So about a month after Yom Kippur would have occurred um, back in 1994, maybe half a month or so. But I mean, I guess it's still in the um, cultural mindset. You know, people are thinking about it maybe. All right. Well, let's just get into the episode and talk about the very first scene, which is Joel and Marilyn. So it turns out that there's like a little bit of a bout of hay fever. It's very busy at the office, but Marilyn has taken vacation time off to go with Ted to go see family in Seattle. Mm -hmm. So already this is the the conflict that is arising right here. Mm -hmm. Marilyn is dead set on going because she claims in a I'm not trying to say that she's wrong. We just didn't see the scene of it. Mm -hmm. So she is saying that Joel already gave her the time off. He gave her his blessing. But Joel says like, okay, obviously I either wasn't paying attention or the situation has changed. We got this new hay fever in town. All hands are on deck. I need you to stay. And Marilyn says, no, you got to be a man of your word. I'm leaving to go take that vacation. And Joel says, if you leave, then you will be fired. And then she leaves. <laughs> And all the patients that are like sitting in the uh, waiting room here, uh, they're all like sick and sniffling. They're like, as as Marilyn leaves, they look at Joel and they're just like, what's he going to do? Is he going to fire her? You know, uh, I thought it was pretty, pretty good. But also, yeah, pretty, um, pretty hard, uh, cold way to start the episode because we just fired Marilyn, which is crazy. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the patients I noticed in this scene Looks a lot like Mrs. Noah Nuck from that episode, Our Tribe. Oh. I couldn't confirm that through IMDb or the credits at the end of this episode, but that actress um, who plays Mrs. Noah Nuck, I believe her name is Rosetta Pintado, could be getting, it's something like that. Um, she plays Miss Noah Nuck in season three, and she's also like in season two as like a bingo hall player. So I'm, mm -hmm. I bet she's probably in a lot of little episodes, like in little parts, but looks similar there. Neat. Also, the other thing I wanted to point out, I think the vacation is in Talkeetna. She's going to Talkeetna with Ted. Oh, Talkeetna. Why did I think Seattle? Well, she's gone to Seattle before. Let me just make sure. But because um, I also could have been, I could have written down Talkeetna because that's like on the brain. I I know that um, some people say that Talkeetna is sort of what the creators of the show used as inspiration for Sicily. Mm, okay. Yeah, it is Talkeetna. So yeah, I'm not sure what they're doing. I think she says some family reunion. That's what she says. And we mentioned this before, uh, and the, the last episode that we saw Ted was towards the end of season five. It was an episode called Grand Prix, which I think, um, you know, I don't think fans particularly liked it. On We were asking, like, what are your favorite and least favorite episodes? <laughs> but I actually really loved that episode because of Ted, his character. And that's actually the last time we see him on screen. I'm at least thankful that we hear about him and that we know that Marilyn is still with him because I thought... It would be sad if they broke up or something. Uh, but, I mean, we don't see him in this episode. We're not going to see him again, unfortunately. Okay. Well, uh, that's fine because <laughs> his presence is felt throughout the episode right here. Yeah. Uh, we can talk a little bit about the next scene before we diverge into our plot lines. Okay. But this introduces the B plot. And there's one more after this, but 
Yeah. Okay. This is going to be Chris Akebeter talking about the fox hunt that's mm-hmm. going on with a new guest character, Lady Anne. Lady Anne Reynolds, the guest of honor for what he calls the Sons of the Tundra Fox Hunt, uh, which I guess is a annual thing or maybe it's a new thing. But uh, I'll tell you what, Maurice has a new Range Rover. That's something that Chris notices Uh and, and Maurice is driving around in this. I wonder if he's going to keep this throughout the rest of the mm. season. We'll have to um, keep an eye on that. But we also learned that Maurice um, ordered like a British fox, specifically from, he says, imported from Northumberland. Um, and he's like imported this fox for this hunt. And, you know, it's kind of implied, like he's trying to impress this uh, lady Anne um, because she comes from... I guess some pretty haughty, taughty um, family, uh, like pretty high status, you know? Yeah, her lineage is extremely fancy. Like you said, I think that Marty said that her great great grandfather fought in the Battle of Trafalgar. Mm. She's descended from Agincourt. So, very, very fine stuff right there. <laughs> I like how Chris is set up in the office. Uh, question, mm-hmm. because we are literally doing this ourselves. Can you be that far away from the mic and still pick <laughs> up noise? I'm talking someone, about 238. Yeah, <laughs> someone else, one of our guests, I believe it was Ben in season five, was um, also complaining or pointing out that Chris, being such a skilled radio DJ, is not practicing very good microphone technique. Uh, that shot, there's two mics. Is He's got a handheld one and then he has his like, uh, broadcast radio mic that's on the little boom arm. So which one do you, which one are you focused the on? The boom arm one. Yeah. He's definitely not close enough for that. These mics, as you're aware, Charles, you know, they pick up the sound information close to the capsule of the microphone. So it's better to be, you don't want to be like kissing the mic, but you want to be pretty close specifically that, um, that broadcast mic that he's using is the SM7B, I think, or it might be an older version of that that model. And I know that those require a lot of gain, a lot of volume to actually pick up on the mic. So you don't want to be too far away. I won't even pick you up. So you're, mm. you're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought it, he looked very comfy, leaned back in his chair, talking about the comings of the town. So well, I'll talk about this one a little bit more because it sets up the conflict before mm-hmm. we jump into the C plot. Okay. But we skip forward to Maurice and Lady Anne in Ruth Ann's shop. And they have a short little conversation with Walt, where Walt implies even further that Maurice... Mm is attracted to Lady Anne. Mm-hmm. But this is also where the the setup of the conflict comes because this is where they introduce the fox who is quote-unquote British to the core. And this little fella is chomping at the cage and obviously does not want to be here. And you can also see that Ruth Ann obviously does not want them to hunt this fox. Yeah, she's like staring at it disapprovingly. Also, we learned that Maurice... Um he had to kind of jump through some hoops to even get this fox here. He claimed that it was supposed to be a gift for the Anchorage Zoo. Obviously, that's not the case. So I could see Ruthann maybe not being happy with Maurice for being sort of like a liar and getting away with something that he shouldn't be getting away with. And also, you know, maybe this is something we don't fully know about Ruthann, but she might be like uh you know, protector of animals, an animal lover. I think we will see throughout this episode, um, at least when it comes to this fox who, as you mentioned, yeah, does visibly look a little scared and not comfortable here. 
<laughs> looks adorable though yeah very cute little fox such a cute little thing have you seen like domesticated foxes uh they don't they're they're not like the orange variants okay they're like the russian ones yeah. and they're, they're like gray they seem like very chaotic and hyper and they also make really weird sounds like chirpy sounds <laughs> <laughs> but they do, they look, do. They look cute i guess yeah, no, uh, absolutely. Like they're not domesticated yet, <laughs> to, like the degree of dogs. Yeah, and like I, I don't know. I have like, a whole thing about that because it's like <laughs> if we're like exotic animals, I mean, like super exotic ones. Mm-hmm. It's like why are you, why are you taking care of this tiger? Like, why, <laughs> I, don't, I don't, I don't sense a very altruistic motive from you. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but you want to jump anyway. into the the C plot, I guess. Yeah, and I think that we can connect this one with the B plot of the fox hunt because they're oh, very yeah. interconnected with each other. But just to set it up, we get a, another person mentioned but not seen, just like Ted. Mm-hmm. This person is Jackie, which is Holling's daughter, or at least the daughter that he discovered about two years ago, mm-hmm. and. She's supposed to fly down to meet little baby Miranda for the first time. And Shelly is not hesitant, but more annoyed because she feels that, justifyingly, Jackie is not really a good character. Mm -hmm. She's a bad seed, according to Holling. So they wait for Jackie to come in, and it turns out that she cashed in her ticket instead. Yeah, only the pilot exits the plane. Surprisingly, it's not Maggie. Maggie's not the pilot. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, it doesn't mean she's not the only pilot here, you know, <laughs> it's, even though we know her <laughs> as a pilot. Um, but, yeah, the pilot comes out and, and informs them that, uh, you know, no, Jackie's not here. And she asked around and found out that Jackie did cash in the ticket just for money. So, wait, why would the pilot even fly? there if there's a, i didn't even think about that i guess she just uh, needed to get back to sicily for something else for her next like whatever her next thing would be next flight i i presume she came from sicily mm-hmm. so oh, she's got to come back to sicily yeah it makes sense yeah so unfortunately holling gets snubbed on the return of jackie mm-hmm. and i i mean honestly i don't even remember what episode jackie <laughs> came in and was that season four i think it was season three um let's see it was an episode called the bad seed it was season four season four episode seven the bad seed and uh yeah i mean she's not a great character i can't fully remember what happened there but i do remember she um like kind of what they mentioned in this episode like hauling essentially kicks her out because mm. oh it turns out she was just trying to get some money from hauling at the end right and hauling tries to justify it by saying well it's been two years but we'll talk more about that as we get more into the plot line right there well speaking of bad seeds we get to go back to joel let's focus a little bit on his plot mm-hmm. line bad way with uh, bad seed because bad plot line or hayden Oh, Hayden? Okay, yeah. Yeah, he gets like the short end of the stick back to back, yeah, man. We do not like Hayden. Ed is Hayden's only friend. And I guess now, actually, by the end of this episode, maybe Joel is Hayden's friend too. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. But the, what's happening here is that we're back in the brick. And I, I didn't really like entirely understand it to its fullest degree. But Eugene is here. He's talking to Joel saying like, mm-hmm. Hey, we got this thing going on for Hayden where we're all going to help fix up his house. Right. Someone's going to handle the painting. Someone's going to do concrete work. Someone's going to do et cetera, yada, yada, yada. And 
he talks to Joel and says, like, all right, what can I put you down for? Six hours of this work? And Joel says, what, are you kidding me? Like, no. Like, I'm not doing this. This guy doesn't take care of himself whatsoever. Like, he's out there smoking, drinking, eating large portions of food. And and as a doctor, I have a responsibility to not aid him on that. So I got to give him (laughs) a little bit of tough love right there. To a degree... I kind of understand where Joel's coming from. Hear me out here. Yeah. It's more on the notion of like six hours is a lot to ask for from a doctor. Yeah. I, f- I feel like true. to be like, hey, can you go do six hours of free volunteer thing of like not even doctor stuff, just like laying concrete, yeah. like something in which you I, you may or may not be good with. Mm-hmm. Just do this. Can I put you down for this? I was like, what? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? It's that small town that everyone helps out with each other. So, but, um, but no, I agree. Um, this doesn't seem like something that Joel would, you know, be excited to sign up for. But the reasons he cites for not doing it is pretty, um, pretty harsh as well. You know, basically, like I don't believe in we can help him if he can't help himself. You know, I think what had happened was, uh, was Hayden his house burned down or part of his house suffered some fire damage because he was smoking in bed, which is why Joel's like. Oh, no, I mean, like, he was an idiot. He brought that on himself. He shouldn't have been smoking in bed. Like, I told him to stop smoking so much. So, uh, Joel is just pretty irritable, I guess, at this point in the episode, because he also just fired Marilyn. Things are not going great um, for him today. Right. He's also got Yom Kippur coming up, which is going to be uh, just something on his mind. Uh, and the way that he gets through Yom Kippur is that he tries to stock up on food like a squirrel for hibernation. <laughs> he tries to get through that thing. So he orders a large amount of food. And Ed brings over the plates of food to him and keeps him company. Uh, he brings him over two plates of food. One is for Ed himself. And the other is like this. I thought it was a cake initially when I saw it. I was like, it looks like a very thick, very tasty piece of cake but then it, it turns out it's like some sort of like pot like soup container like what what, what is that let me see you're gonna get a better look at like 852 okay i know that um ed was like doing um a burger i believe yeah you know that kind of looks like maybe like a french onion soup you would put in there or something that is very interesting uh it is like a pot with a lid and there's like french fries on the side yeah, I have no idea what that could be. French onion soup is my best guess. That's what I thought too. I was yeah. like, is that French onion soup right there? Um, <laughs> but yeah, Joel's trying to stock up, trying to get through it. And he talks to Ed a little bit about what Yom Kippur is about. Mm-hmm. The idea of repenting, the idea that this is the day in which you try to look inwards on your mistakes. And in fact, they got the story of the goat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have no idea if this is true or not. I did not look into this. But apparently... They would metaphorically designate one single goat as the burden of their their sins and then send it off into the desert. Yeah. I don't remember if he says this is Jewish, a Jewish tradition or if it was just like some culture, but I have heard this as being the um the origin of the term scapegoat. Um, but that is interesting if it does have like a connection to Judaism or the Jewish people. Um, and it is an interesting um story to tell here. Ed also brings up, uh, oh, that's kind of weird, kind of like the Tale of the Otter People. And I Googled Tale of the Otter People. I didn't find anything with that title, but there is like uh, folklore in um, sort of that Pacific Northwest. Some uh, tribes up there have 
this folklore of these sort of mischievous otter people who are like humans that, or, you know, man shapes that can shape shift into like otters and- No way, like, like, what, like where otters? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think they want to like steal your soul or do some weird stuff. So <laughs> got to be careful. I think that's what he's talking about. I don't know if that's the tale of the otter people, but I thought that was interesting to find that sort of mythology there. No, <laughs> I love it. Where otters are there. <laughs> but yeah, Ed is really fascinating. He takes out his notebook and starts- taking down what Joel is saying. That leads us forward into Joel's plotline where he's examining Maggie, who doesn't have a lot of screen time this episode, mostly because she's sick. That's why she's seeing Joel. Joel's oh, yeah. examining her. They have a little bit of a conversation in here where they're talking about uh, how she can't trust him or she doesn't realize the extent of uh, Joel's capacity to fire somebody. Because she's like, you know, I thought I knew you pretty well, but now I'm reevaluating the way that our relationship works. <laughs> and a really neat thing about this scene, in my opinion, is the way that it is shot. So they have this argument in Joel's office, and it continues all the way to outside. But when they leave Joel's office, Maggie goes and gets her coat. And the coat rack serves as a very cheeky framing that separates Joel and Maggie mm. together. So you're seeing two opposing sides of the argument right there, mm -hmm. the left and the right. And then they leave Joel's office, where this framing also continues on the background of Joel's office. The white beam of the office serves to separate the two, where Joel's on the left again, and Maggie is on the right. And then they cross the street, mm -hmm. and the camera swivels, where it kind of shifts a little bit more toward the position of looking at Maggie now instead of Joel, because this is where the crux of the argument now flips, where Maggie is saying like, oh, now you're going to make Marilyn crawl on her knees in order to beg for her job. <laughs> this is where she's getting in like a counterpunch. Yeah. And you still have the framing of another pole. Uh, there's two of them, the totem pole and the telephone pole, which serves to divide them. And my gut instinct is that like, this has got to be purposeful. The co-rack yeah. for sure. Mm -hmm. is purposeful. I don't know about the white beam when they step outside, but then the um, the the ending shot where mm -hmm. the camera swivels, that's a very purposeful camera movement. Right. There's like no way that was not purposeful right there. Uh, so I thought that whole two minutes was really well done. Yeah, that whole camera movement is definitely, you have to like plan that out because you have to like pull focus and get everything, uh, you know, the proper distance and block it out. So they definitely plan that out. I love that too because um, there is... Uh, it's pretty interesting. I, I think we're oftentimes when we're in that um, doctor's office, like lobby area, mm -hmm. we're usually, not usually, but sometimes we're on set, like in a sound stage. But this one, you can see like they actually leave the office and start walking in the street. So they were on location there and they're like walking through the road at some point. There's like cars going by. And yeah, that, I really love that, uh, that action there, that movement. The scene ends with uh, Joel kind of standing alone as Maggie has left. And there's like a totem pole behind him that um, lets out a sigh and it says his name, Joel. Like its mouth kind of moves like special effects mm -hmm. and it says Joel. And I think uh, I rewatched this at the end of the episode or after watching the episode, I rewatched this scene, this moment. And it sounds like um, Jerry Adler's voice, like Rabbi Shulman. Uh, saying that, mm. I don't know. But why the, <laughs> but why the totem pole? <laughs> oh, it's because uh, I didn't realize this until we watched more of the episode uh -huh. where I realized it was a, a Christmas carol. Uh, it's the door knocker. Oh, I didn't even think of that. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. Because then they showed like the children 
uh, that's like underneath the um, uh, the robes. The robes of oh, Christmas. Yeah. Uh, is that also yeah. a Christmas Carol thing? Yeah, I think they're supposed okay. to represent like. Um, I'm trying to remember what they were. Uh, ignorance and want. I want to say hmm. those are the two that they represent. So it's, it's okay. It, like, like I said again, it's all right. So like, it's getting a little bit more forward toward there. <laughs> you introduced those two things as a homage to Christmas Carol, uh, the self-absorption, and uh, what was the other one? What was the other child? Arrogance. Arrogance. You got those two, and Joel tries to talk to them. They ignore him. But otherwise, that's it. Yeah, it was, it was just aping after Christmas Carol. Yeah, it's like that's where it's I plagiarism. Like, like at one point, is this just like <laughs> really? It's already written, you know, so they're just doing it. But yeah, it's just following the beats of the story. Mm-hmm. So it's already like it's like tracing. Yeah, so you're not right. really drawing; you're just tracing. <laughs> and I, yeah, whatever. We'll, we'll we'll get to that, but uh, definitely a doorknob. Yeah. The next scene: Joel is woken up at night in his bed. A window has blown open. You know, he's kind of like going up to close the window when he hears Rabbi Shulman, you know, Rabbi's turning on a lamp because it was dark and he's got his like notes out. He's trying to look over something with the lamp and he's wearing uh, this sort of like old ceremonial garb. This is the soundbite that we played at the very beginning of this podcast where we see Rabbi Shulman once again and he says something like uh, he's got sort of the Pharisee look. I was like, what is going on? Like, what is this? It's kind of an ancient sort of feeling, Jewish uh, ceremonial robes and a hat that looks very funny, um, not very modern. But of course, he is the spirit of Yom Kippur past. So here we begin our sort of Christmas carol uh, jaunt for the rest of the episode. Yeah, this is where he goes through to the living room. He's got the little... VCR plugs it in, turns to channel three and shows Joel the sins of his past. And I, it just occurred to me that the VCR is like a really useful device to use in stories to showcase uh, an audiovisual mm-hmm. medium. If you tried to do this today without using a VCR, but you wanted to convey that same type of communication, it really wouldn't go as eloquently because you wouldn't just like turn on the television, like the flat screen, 48 inch television. It would just show scenes. You need something that serves as the container of the memory. Mm. So in this case, in today's time, it would be like, I don't know. I, I really can't even think of like the, yeah. the device you would use, like a YouTube video. Yeah. Cause they've got, um, tapes. He's got all these old VHS tapes with the past memories, uh, things that happen with Joel screaming at Maggie, things like that. Yeah, I think YouTube, I think that would have to be the thing. Like you go to the YouTube link, uh, the YouTube video. That's just not as eloquent though. That just yeah. sounds, that sounds Zoomer as heck. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we're like the old people screaming at the clouds or whatever, you know, but I agree. <laughs> I think uh, it's something physical, you know, with the tape. So yeah, Joel's kind of just sitting there watching all these tapes. Uh, Rabbi's like, I need to get some air. I've got a sermon to give in a few hours anyway. So just like, you know, don't freak out yet. You have like hours of this to watch. So keep watching. I'm going to go outside for a bit. The next time we see Joel, he's woken up. Um, there's like some white noise on the TV. He's like, I guess, falling asleep watching these tapes. And Rabbi Shulman reappears now in a different uh, sort of uh, outfit, more modern, more present day. I've got a soundbite for this. Ready, Joel? Ready for what? Spirit of Yom Kippur present. Come on, we gotta get moving. Oh, come on, look, Rabbi, you know, 
really, I, I appreciate this little Dickensian paradigm, but can we just maybe shorthand it a bit? I can understand your hostility, Joel. Oh, I'm not hostile, all right? I'm really not hostile. I just, I'd like to know what is going on here. I mean, you made your point. I watched your movies. Repentance is not like washing your hands, you know. It takes time, devotion, pain even. In Yom Kippur, we're commanded to afflict our souls. Do we have to? I like that. Do we have to? And still, you know, he begrudgingly follows the rabbi outside. They walk out into the cold of the night. Um, you had mentioned this before we started recording, but the this soundbite and also the one we played at the beginning, just the uh, ambient sounds that play when you're in Joel's cabin at night. The first one sounded really like a jungle. This one is still has like a loon or something in the background, but it's very... Uh, very dense, like forest, uh, nature, like night, jungly sounds. I don't know. You know, that actually confused me for a little bit because I know that Joel lives like next to the lake to some sort. He's very middle of nowhere, right? even in terms of Sicily, because it's like a cabin that Maggie mm-hmm. uh, maintains. But when Joel opens the window at the end and in the beginning when the, jo- the window is open, when Rabbi comes in... There's like a whole lot of foliage. Like more foliage than I would have thought. I'm like, I don't know that we've ever seen that window open before. And like, how often do we look out that window? No, we've seen it once. It's um, Oh. Listeners may correct me on this, but there's one episode in which I really like where it begins with a shot of that window opening. And then the episode ends by like looking outside of that window, but it transports us to like Italy. Oh, is that the... um, Una Volta and Linverno one, maybe? Yeah, I think it's that one. I think it's that it's like I want to say that's the same window. Yeah, and you know, I'm thinking about this too. There's got to be a window in there because at the end of Jewels at Joel, they have like a whole Wizard of Oz thing and everyone's like gathered at the window and like looking in at Joel in bed. Um, but no, I do think uh, I agree with you too. This like the amount of like greenery outside of his window, it almost feels like it's, um, and I know it's probably because they're on a set and they're just trying to, disguise that there's not really nature outside, but, um, yeah, it almost feels like they're like higher up or something. Cause there's like a tree limbs, like right in his window. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's pretty, we, we get another look out that window later in the episode as well. Right. Uh, well in this sequence, we are now brought to the present where we see Hayden who's out in the cold and Joel tries to help him, but the rabbi says, like, no, this is what you said. You said to let him experience what it's like to be outside in the cold, to try to fend for himself. And then we skip to Marilyn, who's eating rice roti, and Joel realizes that she had a family to support. She had other people that were relying on her. So without this job, she has to cut the trip a little bit soon. Mm-hmm. She's got to try to find another job. And I thought that, like I said before, that's the thing that really hooked me. And I was like, oh, no, okay, that, that makes sense. Like, I, I like this. But, yeah, uh, I mean, if it sounds like I'm being very bored right now, it's because it's just following yeah. the Christmas Carol, because right after this is the two children that they show. Oh, yeah. Very uh, radical 90s kids, you know? <laughs> yeah. What? I'm pretty sure you would also know this, too. Uh what is the boy playing? Because that's not a Game Boy. Yeah, it kind of, uh, you know what? I, I, I'm i going to beat myself for like not actually paying attention and looking at what that was. I'm guessing it's a like a Game Gear. 
Um, let me look at it. Twenty nine oh nine. Because I love I love that sort of stuff. You know. Huh. I actually can't tell. Kind of looks like a Game Gear, maybe, but. They made a bunch of it those. It almost little... looks like a switch. It almost looks like a switch. I was yeah. just like, wait, what? Remember last episode with the uh, Ronaldo Pine Tree and he was like he got the he was, iPhone. It looked like he was touching an iPhone, but it was obviously probably a calculator or something. Um, yeah. But I I think these kids look fun and and cool. But um, yeah, they're very stereotypically radical 90s kids. Like this is something you would see on like R slash 90s. Uh, subreddit, you know, what is that? Uh, like vaporwave? What is yeah, that? Something like that. <laughs> Same on there. But, uh, yeah, the kids, as you mentioned before earlier, it's like arrogance and self-absorption. Rabbi says of the two fear self-absorption more. Interesting. I don't know. Um, I mean, I get that for sure. Uh, but I thought that was an interesting distinction. It's weird that the kids emerge from the rabbi's robes. Does that happen in Christmas Carol or? It does. Okay. Because it's yeah, like we see the, yeah. the feet of the children as well as the rabbi's feet. So there's like a, a cloak, a robe with like way too many feet, uh, legs coming down from the robe and it opens up and the kids emerge. How, how great would it have been though if like, I know they weren't going to do it, but like when they did that shot, the rabbi was actually composed of two children. Like that's what I made him up. It was going to be a thing when we saw those legs and feet. I was like, is the rabbi actually just like three kids in a trench coat? That's amazing. <laughs> they would have went there. Would have loved them. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to the next. Um, uh, the third one. Yeah. The spirit of Yom Kippur to come. It's uh, the door. At, somehow Joel um, is back at his his cabin because actually when we left last, the rabbi like disappears. They're like in Marilyn's house, I guess rabbi and everything disappears and Joel's left there alone. Next time we see Joel, he's opening the door of his cabin and there's a really close up, uh, basically filling the frame business card for Shulman brothers mortuary. And this is like the spirit of Yom Kippur to come. He's the rabbi now dressed all in black with the black fedora, dark glasses, lots of very loud lightning and thunder. And the rabbi doesn't speak at all. Uh, so Joel is just left to kind of um, talk aloud to explain what's going on here. Um, There's two things. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. There's two things that I wanted to note on that card. Oh, yeah. Uh, one, there is a Spanish phrase written on there. Se habla espanol. Mm-hmm. And then there's also a number, 212-555-4587. And I wonder if anyone's ever called that before. Interesting. 212. We got to look this up. What is the area code? I know 555. I don't know if it still is, but 555 is like the movie phone number. Like it doesn't, no, no 555 numbers work or whatever. Yeah. What is the 212 area code? Let's look it up. I think it's New York, right? Uh, let me just check. It is New York. Yeah. Um, sorry, I was also looking up something cause I was, uh, I was looking at moose chick earlier. Um, there's the mm -hmm. moosechick.com and they have a little picture of that card. No Interesting. Card? Yeah, what, what does, uh, what does Sahabla Espanol mean? Uh, we like, we speak Espanol or. Oh, yeah. okay. Got it. Um, cool. But yeah, so we're following this very dire, dreary rabbi spirit of Yom Kippur to come. Joel doesn't think it's appropriate to see the future. He's like, I don't know. I don't think it's a, it's not such a great idea to do that, but somehow he must oblige the rabbi and he follows. We see from sort of, uh, I can't remember how I'd remember. I don't think this is the first shot in the sequence, but I do remember vividly this very high angle wide shot as Joel is exiting his office. Like he's dressed mm -hmm. very handsomely 
He's leaving his uh, office. He steps outside and we go to this very high angle wide shot as we see Joel walking kind of like with his head down, all the people are gathered around him and he's walking to this bus. And I don't know if you caught this, but the Joel in the like far in the distance, like in the background there, it's not actually Joel. It's like some lookalike actor because in the foreground, uh, the rabbi and Joel will step into the foreground. They're kind of like watching from afar. Mm -hmm. So within the same shot, we have Joel, the actor, Rob Morrow. And then we have Joel, like some body double, you know, deeper in the distance as he's like uh, hugging Maggie and getting onto the bus and stuff like that. Mm, Nice. That's a good way to... uh Get that in before days of CGI. (laughs) And this is the scene where the entire town turns on Joel. (laughs) Shelly and Maggie have their own thing. Ed and Ruthann, Holling and Maurice. And they all say that, you know, Joel was a cold fish when he came in and he was a cold fish when he left. Mm -hmm. So they dump away any artifacts that they had at Joel Fleischman, the golf shoes, the memories of him. And then... In a further escalation of the point, Joel asks, like, oh, where's Hayden then? Like, maybe he might care about me. <laughs> and then we cut to the graveyard. Hayden's obviously dead. It's <laughs> like from hypothermia, something Surprised like that. Surprised he hadn't died earlier, like in this episode. <laughs> I thought they would have killed him sooner. Yeah. And then and then we just follow the the beats where we get the gates of the gates I, of I, prayer. I don't know if is what he says. The yeah. gates of prayer, yeah. Yeah. You get the gates of prayer and all I could think when I was watching this, I was like, I think there's a Twitter account that exists where it says like Northern Exposure Out of Context yeah. or something like that. I was like, yeah. oh, this is like prime <laughs> Northern Exposure Out of Context. Just show this scene of Joel trying to get to the gates and it keeps yeah. cutting between the gate and Joel. And there's an overlay of like the image of the gate with that Star of David it that's almost, overlaid yeah, on top of it. almost looks them. satanic. <laughs> satanic, yeah. I always think about that sometimes when things get really wild on the show is like, Imagine changing the channels in 1994 and this comes on. You're like, yeah, this comes up. You're like, Jewish symbolism. And this man is like running with this like red, this very heavy red lighting in this spooky cemetery. It's so weird. It's cool. I love this. Um, I actually really love the, uh, they do the vertigo shot. Are you familiar with like the vertigo effect? Wait, what is that? It's like, uh, most, um, notably it's, they, they, they cite the movie Jaws as one, but also the movie Vertigo. It's when like the perspective sort of like does this weird zooming and, and like it sort of inflates or contracts. It does this weird effect. But essentially what's happening is um, you take a camera on a dolly and you're, dolly, you're either dollying into the actor mm-hmm. or you're dollying away from the actor while at the same time you're zooming in or zooming out. So if you're dollying in towards the actor, you zoom out on the camera. So you have the these two conflicting perspectives, like moving closer oh, and moving away with the yeah. zoom. Or if you're moving away on the dolly, you would zoom in really fast, kind of at an equal rate, and it creates a weird effect. It looks like... Yeah, it looks like he's running on a treadmill. And he is, yeah, he is running in place while the background is like, I think in this in this version, the background is inflating. So to do that, you would um, dolly backward away from the actor and zoom in, I think, to make the background bigger, I think. But that, you know, that's how it's done. And it's pretty effective here for this one little moment. I'm, I appreciate that they did that. I think that's so fascinating on techniques that you could 
only do in live action because of the physics of our world. Yeah. And that's one the of physics them. of that like you see, there. Yeah. Yeah. You see that and you're like, if you try to recreate that, it's like, why would you do that? It's just like, you would only do this in live action. Yeah. I think that's really, did do they still do that type of shots or do they compensate oh, yeah. with CGI now? Uh, no, I mean, I wouldn't think so. I think that's like a very specific in camera trick. I think you could try to do something where you have the actor on a green screen and you just take the background and either shrink it or expand it really fast. But mm -hmm. it has this weird, otherworldly, strange effect that um, that I think is best if you just if you want to do it, you got to do it with the dolly. You know, the dolly zoom is another name for it. Okay, so I, we don't have to have this on the um, on the pod. I just want to reiterate how it is. So you have a dolly, and it's either going toward the person or away from the person. But right. the, either way. At the same time, the camera lens is either tightening or is it loosening? It depends. So if you're moving towards the actor, you're widening. You're loosening the lens. You're widening So you the do lens. the opposite of whatever the direction oh, is, and that's what makes... Okay. So what's essentially happening is like if you were moving closer to the actor, they would get bigger in frame, right? Mm -hmm. But if you're moving closer to the actor and you're zooming out, what's weird is that like despite you getting closer, the actor doesn't change size. Mm -hmm. But everything else is going insane. Like the background is like you're trying to keep the actor the same size even as you push in close. So you zoom out mm -hmm. and then it makes the background do crazy shit. And then, go. Oh, sorry, go ahead. If you were, uh, if you were wanting to do, like shoot this straight, like you didn't want to do this nonsense, <laughs> uh, would, you, would you just dolly in and the camera lens would tighten? Or would you leave the camera lens alone and you just dolly in? Um, like what is the proper course of action if oh. you were shooting this normally? I think dollying in makes it be like it's kind of exaggerating and it's like uh, getting excited. It's like really showing you. Dollying in would make his face get really big. So if you want to see mm -hmm. his reaction on his face, there's that. The use of this vertigo technique is you have this feeling of space warping around you. Mm -hmm. So Joel is like stuck in place running and there still feels like there's so much motion even though – He's not getting closer. It almost feels like he's being uh, he's being pulled pulled forward and pushed away at the same time. Like he can't get right. closer to the gates. What would happen if you tighten the lens while the you're, you're dolling in? While you're dolling closer, you'll just get like really you get too close up, basically. Oh, yeah. okay, got but it. But if okay, you zoom, if you dollied out and zoomed in, you would have a, probably a similar effect, except the background would seem to get further away. Hey, it's Lee with a quick punch-in correction. I'm pretty sure I got my examples backwards, but the principle is still the same. Uh, for a quick visual explanation, it's probably easiest if you just go to YouTube and uh, search Dolly Zoom example, and you can see exactly how it works. I say inflating oh. with the other one because it's like the background is getting closer, even though yeah. he's staying the same size. The other version is like the background's getting further away. And in that sense... That's kind of like the vertigo shot, which is in the movie Vertigo when he looks over like a, um, a ledge and it basically, what looks like the ground gets further away. So that's what they do in Vertigo. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, he'll look over and it'll be like, zoom, it'll like expand. And I think they do that in Jaws as well. I can't remember what it is in Jaws if it's the, if it's like getting bigger in the background or if he's like getting pulled away. I don't know. Okay. So on this one, if the camera dollies in, mm -hmm. but Joel's running at the camera right there, is there a set distance in which you're like, all right, Joel, you have to be here, like designated right here on this line that we drew. Mm -hmm. You have to start there, and the camera's right here, and you guys are going to meet right here. 
So do they calculate the distance to be like, if we put Dolly in this amount of space, like at this speed mm-hmm. and Joel runs at this speed, then it's going to, it's going to form this effect. Like, oh yeah. What I mean I by this you, is, like, is there like a mathematical way to calculate this or? There definitely is. I don't think they're doing that on set because he's staying put. He's not actually moving, but you could totally like figure out the factor of like the rate of zoom, the rate of distance. And like, there's definitely math for that. Right. I'm sure. Okay. Got it. Um, but for this instance, I don't think, um, I think since he's staying still, you don't have to worry about that. But anytime he is running towards camera or moving or anytime the camera moves, they definitely want to mark the position of the actors because, um, especially when they're shooting on film and stuff and these, uh, lenses and such, they have to like keep the character in focus at all times. So if he moves or if the camera moves, he might fall out of focus. So um, okay. you want to mark each location, put a little mark on the lens or like your, um, I don't know what you would call it, follow focus. I don't know if they had that back then, but uh, it's like a handheld focus that communicates with the lens to actually move it as you're like, so one person can use this like dial that remotely controls the lens. That's for today or was that back then? I don't know if they had it back then, but they might've, but it might've just been someone on the lens, like an assistant camera controlling it. But now they'll have a follow focus, which is just a motor that attaches to the lens. And the assistant cameraman has a dial that controls that motor. So oh, they can do via it from remotely. Like, from a remote. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's very, okay. very useful. Nice. Anyway. Uh, honestly, <laughs> I thought he was running on a treadmill. That's why I was he like is, so fascinated. He is, run, I thought, he is running on a treadmill, right? He's, he's running in place. He, that's what I was asking oh. about because I wasn't teaching. I was like, did they get that shot like calculated or is he actually running on a treadmill but they're still doing the dolly? That's what it is. With the, the, yeah, the, he's running still okay. but they're, they're doing all the movement. Okay, God. That's why I was like, what is going on? <laughs> it was freaking crazy. Um, okay, I'll jump back in. Right, and that puts us right back into the present, where Joel is still in Yom Kippur. We wake up, and uh, we'll talk about him soon, but Ed's at the hunt. He arrives at (laughs) at Joel's window, full of lush foliage, and Joel's like, oh, great, I get to restart my life. And he goes and talks to Gene and says, put me down for the full day. Um, I'll give him a free x-ray. Turns out that Joel's like, uh, he knows cement, presumably, I guess. I, I don't. I guess that life skill can come in. Like, I'm not too sure. I don't know. I feel like, uh-huh. like, I don't know. My dad's a chemical engineer. It's not like I picked up any <laughs> chemical engineering skills. Oh, yeah. He says, like, his dad is, like, in concrete. So if you need anything, like, I'm your guy. Uh, it's funny. I wanted to go back. Like, I don't know why. Like, Joel goes to open his window, I guess, because he hears something. And it's Ed. Mm-hmm. It just seems like Ed is running straight towards Joel's window. But maybe it's because Ed hears, uh, maybe it's because Joel hears it. And then he opens and he's like, Ed, what are you doing? And then Ed comes. But I was like, yeah, it's very convenient that Ed runs up there. Um, I guess that's what wakes Joel up. And um, he asks, what day is it? It's Yom Kippur. So he's like, okay, I haven't missed it yet. Um, which I guess is Christmas Carol as well. It's like, I haven't missed Christmas or like I have time yeah. to, to do what's right. Um yeah, I think he's just like in good spirits. He wants to be a good person now. He um, finds Marilyn in the office later and he's like, look, I'm sorry if I, or he says, because Marilyn's even there, he's like, what are you doing here? Didn't I fire you? It's just a lot of very classic Marilyn. Like she doesn't respond. So Joel does a lot of the talking here and he's basically like, well, you know, if I did fire you, I want to hire you back. And then I like what you were talking about too earlier. It's like they're actually communicating about being better at 
communicating and fixing their schedules. And he's like, I'm glad we worked it out. He puts his hand on her arm, I guess. And they have like a knowing look, but like I said, like, I do believe that they love each other. I, I liked your pitch for if we had an alternate version where Marilyn is also visited by a spirit and they're kind of brought together in this way. That's kind of interesting where you see it's a, a duplication of that Christmas Carol uh, story that is repeated so often. So the last scene of this plot line is, um, it's interesting because Maggie is trying to find Joel. She goes to the brick and it's about dinner time. And we know from earlier in the episode that Joel will be fasting today because it's Yom Kippur. Uh, you fast until sundown. So it's about dinner time. She's like, well, it's about time for him to eat. But I think Eugene says, no, I, I think he's still praying because he's spending his whole day praying on Yom Kippur. And we cut to Joel like on a mountaintop with his legs crossed, meditating as the sun is setting, like in the background, super mega Zen. It is, uh, and I think, uh, the sun does go down and he like starts to peel an orange, which I don't think there's any significance with oranges in Yom Kippur, but he's gonna, he's gonna eat, eat an orange. Yeah. I think on like on a macro look, it's like, beforehand he was trying to stock up and eat a lot of food mm-hmm. which uh, wait hang on i meant to ask you this is that like considered cheating for yon kapoor or is that like encouraged uh i don't know if it's encouraged i don't think there's ever like a i oh sorry you know i'm a jew in louisiana so there's i feel like it was especially like where we grew up like not a lot of jewish people so i don't know really what the tradition is um i don't think we necessarily had any like special ceremony or ritual for being like, okay, this is our last big meal. We definitely did that. You know, we're like, okay, we better eat a bunch because tomorrow we're going to fast. But I don't think we made a huge deal out of that. Like Joel has gathered all his things. I think that's just a good setup so that Joel can talk about fasting. But fasting, yeah, that, that that was a thing. You just, I think, just drink water and then you eat uh, when the sun is set. Okay, I was making sure that wasn't like part of round the, of fog. Or like oh, you were yeah, cheating, cheating the system. No, no, I think that's yeah. fine. I think that's fine. Okay, <laughs> so then like that, that that's kind of good because I thought they were trying to go for that statement to be mm. like, and now he's modest and humble and he's only eating like one orange slice. It's like, he doesn't get to eat for like how many hours? Like, come on. <laughs> I think that's it though. I think you're right. It's like, this is a, um, a, a, a very, um, not opposite, but this is just different from what he was doing before. Um, he was visited by the ghosts and now he's like humbled, you know, he's eating a simple orange. <laughs> yeah. And that is how Joel reaches enlightenment. Mm-hmm. And that's how we end his plot line. Yeah. Let's roll it back to the beginning. And I think maybe we should do what you're kind of suggesting where we will combine the story of Maurice and Lady Anne with Holling and Ed because those will tie together throughout. Yeah. Let's rewind all the way back to the beginning with Maurice's plotline, where he is with a party of three other individuals. One of them is Lady Anne, and two of them we are not acquainted with. Uh, Mm -hmm. A French man and a French woman. And you could tell it's like high society talk when they're talking about Kandinsky's (laughs) and all these very uh, well-cultured painters. And as it turns out, Maurice has an art collection, and he invites Lady Anne to go take a look at it. This is where the crux of his insecurity comes in because the Frenchman says like, Oh, well, like it looks like that lady Anne will be a very nice companion for you. And um, that angers Maurice. Cause he says like, no, this isn't like some 
ordinary hussy that you would, you know, that you bet in a night. This is somebody you have to court. I mean, look at her mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Uh, language notwithstanding, like, well, you know, whatever that, that attitude is, uh, you get the idea that Maurice is insecure about his lineage, mm-hmm. his past, uh, so to speak, his roots, because he comes from a humble town of Oklahoma. Uh, and she's descended from royalty. Mm-hmm. So no matter how much Maurice tries to surround himself in all of this culture and decadence, uh, drinking sherry, having a private library, he'll never have that type of bloodline. And they talk about it a little bit later mm-hmm. where Maurice says, that type of estate that she comes from, you can't buy that type of estate. You have to be born into that estate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, did you notice um, that the uh, the man at this party talking to Maurice, he's like trying to insinuate that Maurice is going to be shacking up with Lady Anne. That is uh, the caterer from dinner at 730, like Joel's Manhattan penthouse party. It's the same actor. Oh, what? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I noticed when I was looking at that actor from um, from that episode, he has a couple credits in this season. So... I wonder if he's going to return as this um, hoity-toity, uh, whatever this guy is. Is, it, is he going to come back as this or just as another um, character, like bit part? But yeah, as you said, Maurice is a little maybe embarrassed with his standing in comparison to Lady Anne. And also, I think by the end of the episode, we see it's almost like Maurice is putting her up on a pedestal. I remember I was thinking about this because Maurice, and I think it was like the second episode of Northern Exposure, talks about putting his heroes up on, his, on a pedestal, things like that. So he has, um, I also know one of one of my favorite plot lines is with like, his old like commander when he was in the Marines or something mm-hmm. visits him and he's put this man up as like a hero for him. When um, at this point now the commander views uh, Maurice as like the student who has surpassed the master, you know, like he's happy to, um, to celebrate Maurice when, when Maurice is just uh, Maurice is afraid to put himself on the level of uh, people he admires. You know, there's something, there's a, Chris gets to this. There's like an inferiority complex, Uh, but we'll talk about that, I guess, in that scene. I don't want to spoil too much, but um, we've also mentioned the fox hunt. They've brought this fox in. Uh, Something has happened. It appears that the fox has escaped or has it been set loose? I, I think it's kind of unclear, though I would assume, I don't know, maybe it's clear that what do you think? I think maybe the fox escaped or hard to say. I think because the fox was chewing on the lock earlier, right. we can assume that the fox got away. There is one scene right before that that I want to talk oh, about okay. before we get into the fox hunt. Oh, so yeah. we have a small scene where Shelly steps out to go. I want to say she picks up dinner for the family mm-hmm. and Holling is left alone with baby Miranda and he plays a game of peekaboo where you know, the baby doesn't have object permanence, so it doesn't realize that when Holling covers up his face with his hands, he disappears. <laughs> and then when he reveals it, he's back in her life. And I thought that was like very, this is like the moment where it's like, okay, this is some point in writing. Yeah. Because he relates this to his own daughter and saying like, I was there for her life at one moment, but then at a snap of a finger, 
I'm now gone. And he, he realizes this yeah. while playing peekaboo with, uh, with his daughter. Yeah, I do really like that. I wasn't thinking about that. It's a great uh, metaphor or analogy of what's going on here where he's physicalizing that with uh, peekaboo. And it really, it really ties into his relationship with his first daughter, Jackie. And um, I, I liked, I liked the, uh, the, the emotionality in this scene. Holling says to Miranda, he says, you have a big sister, Randy, but I don't expect we'll ever see her again. And um, yeah, I mean, at some point while I was rewatching this episode, I was like, okay, maybe Jackie will show up eventually. But, and there was also another point in the episode where I realized we weren't going to see Jackie again, like ever in this series, perhaps. Um, so I, yeah, I liked the acting here with Hauling. I, you know, um, John Colum is a fabulous actor. I also felt like, um, it felt like he was about to start like a monologue or something, but then it kind of cuts. Uh, so I don't know if there is a deleted scene. I have to, actually, I didn't do my due diligence and I'll usually pop in the DVDs and see if there's a deleted scene. If there is, we'll punch it in here or we'll talk about it at the end of the episode. But yeah, was that just me? It kind of felt like he was beginning to monologue. That would have been awesome. <laughs> if he, if <laughs> that would have been good. I mean, Holland gets like, he gets all the best lines this episode yeah. because yeah. When, when we carry forward to the next scene, which is where the fox hunt, um, which is where they uh, commenced a, kind of like a miniature fox hunt yeah. of sorts, not the one that we're playing for, <laughs> but the one for the escaped one, you get everybody rallied in different positions where where you have Maurice and Lady Anne in the Range Rover, and then you have Chris on his motorcycle with the hounds, <laughs> and then you have Ed and Holling. Mm-hmm. And Holling says, I've created a hole in the world that I can't repair. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's, that's a good. very <laughs> very nice right there, Holling. He gets all the great lines right here. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, what's going on in this scene is that they're looking for this fox that escaped. Mm-hmm. And everyone's trying to triangulate the position right there. And they are using the appropriate hounds, I want to say. Oh, cool. I think there's I'm not like a hound expert on this, <laughs> like a hunting expert, but there's like two different foxhounds. There's like the American foxhound and the British foxhound. They look British foxhounds to me. I mean, honestly, I thought they were beagles at first glance. I was like, is that just like a beagle? But uh, that is a traditional dogs that you would use to look for a fox. I'll have to hit up um, Ann Gordon, see if she knows anything about the animals in this episode. I was thinking about her this episode. I was like, yeah, they got very specific fox, the dogs. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I always think about that with shows. It's like, they probably have like a line budget for animals. And so like, mm-hmm. you know, it might be a thing where they're like, oh, we can save, like we don't need an animal for this episode. Or it might be a thing where it's like, well, we have it in the budget. Can we like put an, can we write an animal into this? You know? <laughs> so I like that though. Yeah. Well, what's going on very briefly in this scene is that this is where Ed learns about Holling's problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Holling muses a little bit more about the seed that he unleashed on the world. And even though she's a bad seed, she's still his seed. It's still something that tethers him mm-hmm. to the past to some degree. And he's sharing this with Maurice, who is tethered to his past in Oklahoma. And Joel's tethered to his past by Yom Kippur. Mm-hmm. So this is how I'm going to tie it all together with the fox hunt. So fox hunts, as we can probably tell just by the name, is a type of activity that came from England in the 16th century. And you would just use these hounds to try to get the scent of this fox and it would chase it down. 
and, and the dogs would capture it and they would kill the fox right there. And that was something that was like really, really popular in the countryside way back in England right there. It was a really distinct part of British culture and it was a key part of social life in rural areas. In fact, other people could follow along with them on bikes or vehicles. They didn't have to be necessarily in that like, you know, that get up yeah. that they're wearing <laughs> right there. They didn't have to be there. It was a, it was like a community event hmm. where they can do there. Now, this is without talking about the obvious cruelty to the fox. I'm ignoring this part. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, fox hunting was and is a traditional part of British culture. When they participate in this fox hunt, it is a repetition of the past. Mm -hmm. It is continuing the cycle of saying that there's something that connects us. And I think that's where all three of the plot lines are coming together. And that's why this episode so prominently features a fox hunt. I like that. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. I, I love that connection here with the fox hunt. It, to me, these all felt like disparate parts, but there is connection between Ed and Holling and Maurice and the fox. And now I'm liking how you're tying it in with the uh, Joel's past and his religion as well. I think that's really awesome. And uh, yeah, I think this is kind of a... Uh, when you read the title, So Far So Good, I'm like, oh yeah, cool, the Yom Kippur episode. And I said before, I'm very thankful that there's some representation there, but uh, don't want to forget now that this is the Fox Hunt episode, because I think this is like a pretty great plot line in this episode. Right. Now, this episode was released in 1994, mm -hmm. but if we skip forward almost a decade into the future, they will find that fox hunting becomes illegal in Britain. Ah. Uh, Tony Blair signed a piece of legislation, like the, I think it was the Hunting Act, I want to say is what it's called, of 2004, mm. and it bans fox hunting in Britain. Though, I believe you can do it in parts of Northern Ireland and uh, other sporadic parts, mm. so it's not like completely banned from that region. One of the weirdest things that I read, though, and I, I tried to look more into his reasoning or why he said it, and I, I, I don't want to put words into his mouth, but Tony Blair said that him passing the the Hunting Act of 2004 was one of his biggest regrets. Wow. And I was wondering, I was like, why? Yeah. Why was that a big regret? Was it because you felt like that killed a like a core part of British culture? Did you feel like you got bullied into signing the legislation? Like, hmm. uh, I was really curious on that. But yeah, uh, you know, I'm not here to speak personally, <laughs> but like on that, but I do think it's, uh, you know, you, you can do substitutes like they did in this episode. Yeah. It's probably a good thing that they stopped, uh, Hunting the fox. I mean, yeah, sorry. I don't know. I don't, I don't want to offend any British people or whatever. Whatever. But Ed does mention that uh, even at the time that this episode was created, he says, like, they've even started doing this in, in Britain as well. You know, like, they've started substituting people and things like that, which is actually... Uh, not the next scene yet, but we're going to get to that. That's, a, that's probably the crux of the, um, the hauling and Ed uh, plot line. But the to continue the fox hunt, I believe uh, the next thing is they find the fox. They find it in Ruthann's yard. You know, they got the dogs barking up all over, like, near Ruthann's porch. And Maurice drives the Range Rover, like, straight through Ruthann's herb garden. On Ruthann's porch is a cage with the fox. And, um, you know, they get out and they're like, okay, sorry, we'll pay for all the damages. Uh, thank you for taking the fox. You found it. Let's get it back. But Ruthann is uh, ruthlessly defending this fox. She even grabs a shovel and threatens Maurice with it. 
claiming uh, that she's going to give this fox sanctuary. I mean, I know that what they're going to do to the fox is pretty cruel. It's not a better outlook for the fox, but um, this is con- also stealing, right? Like she, <laughs> she stole Maurice's property, or is it? Yeah, or is it but- not because like the fox came to her? See, see, because at first I thought maybe she had stolen the fox, but uh, I think uh, it could be understood that the fox did chew its way out of the cage and she just found it. So she's protecting it. Well, when you live outside of the law, you are no longer protected by the law. Mm. So what I mean by this is that Marie's got this under false pretenses. He said it was for the Anchorage Zoo. But in reality, it was for this. So it's like his entire foundation was illegal to begin with. So even if he tried to bring it up with the cops, they would be like, well, what do you have a fox in the first place for? This thing was supposed to go to the zoo. Yeah, it's like, how? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, so Ruthann takes like the moral high ground, I think you would call it, for this episode. And it's protecting the fox here. And uh, she just scare away Maurice. So what will happen next in this plot line is Maurice is uh, coming into K-Bear to, is he actually coming in to talk to Chris? I know this is where they have that conversation. And Chris says, far out, Maurice Minifield with an inferiority complex. Yeah, I think it's just coming back after a long day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. I think that's what's happening over here. Because Chris is talking in the air saying that oh, Rusty, yeah. he, has a, he has a name, Rusty the Red <laughs> is broken loose and... Maurice talks to Chris more about his troubles. And like you said, Chris even pinpoints the problem that he's having with feeling that he's not living up to such great royalty right here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was really curious. There is a there's a line where Maurice says, without being subjected to the Oprah treatment, <laughs> which means I like I guess Oprah was relevant back then. Yeah. I mean, like that was definitely uh I would say that was like kind of the heyday. I would I would place it I mean, I didn't watch Oprah, but I'm trying to think of like when my mom or my parents would watch that it was probably when I was maybe a couple of years after this. But, but yeah, maybe, is that what you're saying? Like you didn't realize she had risen to such prominence this mm. early or that right. it was, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I guess pretty popular now. Uh, we got a, a, a name drop in Northern Exposure with Oprah. Um, <laughs> so that's what actually result. Is there any resolution in that scene? No, it's just more introduction mm-hmm. and more foundation for Maurice to build off of. This is where he waxes about her lineage and says her great, great, great grandfather fought in the battle of Trafalgar. She's from matching court. She has this great lineage. And then Chris talks about, you know, well, you're just from Oklahoma. Of course you would feel this way. Uh, the next scene is a very small one between Ruth Ann and Ed. And this is where Ed's still mulling over ah, Maurice. Yeah. And, uh, Ed is the pivotal line where he says, well, I am a shaman in training, Ruthann. I'm supposed to heal people. So he finds that he has a responsibility to help Holling out of his trouble. So this one also has like a really odd ending to it, yeah. in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Because we have the fox and Ed's looking at the fox and he says, you know, I wonder if it's it would be great to have such a simple life of being this fox. And Ruthann says, well, it's, you know, if it wasn't for me, he would be, you know, it's not so simple. I had to protect it. Yeah. She's like, if it wasn't for me, they'd be torn up by dogs right now. And uh, she says something like, you should have seen Maurice's face when I picked up that shovel. Boy, did I get his goat. Oh, I just got it. I don't, because Ed then says, yeah. And then like, he's like very deeply thinking. 
I just got it. She says, boy, did I get his goat, mm-hmm. scapegoat. Okay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I, I was kind of confused. I was like, what is that thinking? What's going on? It's like goat, scapegoat. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. And this cuts to, it's still, is it still not with her? Yeah, this is the next scene with Maurice now, and this is when he's getting home late at night, and Lady Anne is sitting there in his living room, kind of waiting up for him. Um, and uh, we can see she doesn't really care about the fox. I think she says that to Maurice, like, it's fine. I had still had such a great day with you. And, I, you know, you think about it. You kind of already mentioned this, Charles, but, you know, they didn't do the fox hunt, but at the end of the day, they hunted a fox. Like that was, that seemed like a lot of fun. I loved the coordination as you described it, like Maurice and that Range Rover, very safari style. They got the walkies going to Chris and Ed and Hauling. And they did find the fox at the end of the day, even though they didn't capture it. Uh, it, it still worked out. Um, so she's still like very, Lady Anna's still very happy to see Maurice and kind of invites him to come sit down, though he does turn her down in the scene. I think he's just too down on himself. Um, such a shame because I think this seemed like, um, you know, Maurice, uh, doesn't have to feel so bad because Lady Anne's having a great time. Right. He just can't measure himself up to her. So he is very despondent when he goes to bed. Speaking of despondency, it's also when we see Hauling at his nadir. And that's <laughs> a really cool shot that, yeah. uh, that starts it off. It's Hauling and he's looking through the shot glass <laughs> and you can see, like his, his whole eyes. face, right? It's like, cause yeah. he's looking through the eye, looking through the shot glass and it kind of shrinks his face into the glass. Yeah. I think this can be read in so many different ways because glass is such a wonderful metaphor. Yeah. It, it's so malleable to the, to meaning. So like if you start off with a shot like this, it is number one, just really dynamic. So it's just really cool to see. But number two, I think that like in one way you can read this as Holling believing that everything is being bottled up. So yeah. he's not coming forward with this. Yeah. That's a very literal definition of the bottle. Another one is that like the glass reflects off of his eye. So we're just seeing what he's thinking mm. right there. Um, you can see that's empty, a glass that's meant to be full. Yeah. There's like yeah. so many different ways that you can read this. <laughs> that's great. And it just looks so good. It's such a great little shot. And Ed has walked in to come talk to him. And Holling's like, no, you know, we're closed. And Ed's like... No, no, no. Check it out. I've got a plan. Um, I have a little soundbite here. I think I'll play this. I think this will kind of explain what's going on. Well, we'll do the hunt. Except instead of Rusty, I'll be the fox. And I'll take off about half an hour before everybody else. Then you come and find me. Just like a real hunt. Now, Lady Anne says they're doing this more and more in England on account of all the subdivisions and humane societies. Well, that sounds very imaginative, Ed. But I don't see how it can help me. Well, thing is, Holling, I'll be running for you. Me? I got the idea from Dr. Fleischman. See, back in the olden times, they used to take the sins of the people and put them on the head of this goat. Well, symbolically, of course. And then turn him loose. And that way everyone can feel better about themselves. See, and I know how bad you've been feeling lately, Holling. And I also know that a fox isn't a goat. But I thought it might have the same effect. I like that last little bit where Ed says, I also know that a fox isn't a goat, but I think it'll have the same effect. Like, you know, he's like inviting Holling to, you know, you got to get a level with me here, work with me. You have to get in this mindset 
maybe this can offer you some some respite somehow. Right. There's a whole lot of things going on in this scene that I really enjoy. Um, I think that Holling even has a line where he says, like, you know, I can't put you in danger on account of myself. And right. it says, do you want me to send a release or something? Then? <laughs> and Holling says, no, we just have to come to an understanding with one another. Mm-hmm. You say that line, and like, I, you said it in real life, and you, you, other part, other part is going to, like, snap to attention. That's, like, such a good line <laughs> yeah. to say. Uh, there's a little bit of, like, I, I don't know what the term for this is. I like to call it when, like, logic meets subtext in terms of uh, in terms of blocking and framing. Mm. So when they're having this conversation to start it off with, Holling is at the bar, destitute, and Ed joins them at the bar, and they're at the same side together. And then when Ed brings up the idea about the fox hunt, Holling gets up with his glass, and then he picks up this um, – carton of other glasses and he moves over to the bar Mm -hmm. where it puts him at different sides and when ed says that he'll be the fox that's what gives hauling the opportunity to turn around in shock he couldn't have done that if he was sitting on the same side as ed Mm -hmm. i mean maybe he could use some facial expressions to (laughs) do surprise but this one's like a full body turn because he's so taken back by that Mm -hmm. and when we keep going together where hauling is behind the bar ed's sitting at the bar and the scene buttons, it ends with Ed saying, like, maybe you should put your hands on my head. That allows Holling to move forward at the bar toward Ed. It, like, it creates this, like, left and right dichotomy mm-hmm. on the shot that's really lovely to look at. And I don't think you could have gotten that effect had Holling stayed sitting at the bar. For sure. Now, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. It, yeah, there's so many reasons for why those would happen, in my opinion. Like, number one, it just makes that... Uh, it just makes the scene more lively mm-hmm. that Holling would get up and start cleaning glasses. And it also helps sell the scene of like two sides coming together. Yeah, that especially that last shot, which is just a sort of a profile flat two shot where we see them facing each other like in profile and he puts his hand on his head. Uh, it just looks, yeah, it's just a great composition, very balanced. But yeah, I think you're right. I think it's just uh, at the end of the day, if you had to pull every meaning out of it and just look at it. It's like, okay, this just looks, it's, it's a lot, um, it's a lot nicer to watch, nicer to look at, you know, but I think there is, obviously you can, um, you can understand there is meaning to why the actors are doing this and also perhaps some reality too. Like people don't always sit down the whole time or, you know, people are getting around and moving, but it gives it, um, some motion and some direction literally too, you know, like the literal directions of left and right. So you have uh, this canvas to this canvas of the screen for your eyes to look around. So the director is, you know, trying to give your, your eyes, your eye lines of motion, I guess. I don't know. Who would have, uh, who would have been in charge of that? What, is it like the actor working with the director to say like, I'm going to block from here to here? Yeah, I would. I don't know exactly how it would work, but I would assume how it's usually done is uh, they'll have a rehearsal kind of at the beginning of when they're going to shoot the scene. They'll rehearse with the actors and uh, the director may be like, okay, why don't you deliver your line over here? Or the actor may just start walking around and doing it and they'll go around and be like, okay, the assistant camera person will start marking. Like if the actor moves, they're going to put a mark down, be like, okay, that's where you move to. Uh, so I think it's a... Um, uh, mostly the actors rehearsing the scene and the director maybe helping them find their spots and maybe being like, okay, why don't you go behind the bar at this point? Uh, they're kind of working that out. 
And they do that firsthand as a rehearsal. So where uh, afterwards the rest of the crew can come in and be like, okay, now we need to know that we need to put a light over here because they're going to be standing over there at some point. We need to like all the rest of the crew begins to work after they do a mm. quick rehearsal. So short answer for your question. I think it is uh, probably the actors get a lot of say in that movement. And then the director will probably go on top of it and either accentuate it or rewrite it all and be like, no, 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 you should stand here when you say this. Uh, I think the director probably is shaping it a lot as well. Mm. Okay, nice. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, the next scene we've got, uh, I would assume is the, uh, I think it's when they actually start. Sorry, before we move on, I forgot to mention, because you had said Holling was like, you know, I don't want you to get injured or anything. Like, what's going to happen? I mean, we know what happens to Ed, but like... It's the most dangerous yeah, game. <laughs> it's like, is he going to get <laughs> eaten by these dogs? Thankfully, uh, to skip ahead, like the dogs are just kind of like cutely, you know, they're just licking his face at the end there. But we do get a sequence of uh, lots of people on horseback. Like I think Maurice, Lady Anne, uh, Chris and Holling, dressed in really funny clothes. Like Chris has a funny top hat too. I love it. And they're <laughs> riding on these horses, chasing after Ed. He's dressed in his sort of like, um, I want to say it's kind of like a leather, it's like a shaman outfit that he normally wears sometimes. He's just running as these dogs chase him, uh, running for his life. We get like a crazy, um, it's almost like a stock footage shot of a horse jumping over like a log or something. Yeah, <laughs> I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> horse stunt. Yeah, I love it. Uh, yeah, and this is when the hounds finally catch up to Ed and he trips down a hill, but he's okay. Holland goes down and talks to him and he thanks him and says, I really needed this, Ed. Like, even though I did not understand what you were talking about earlier, it seems like the the act. Yeah. The just the ritual of going through this motion was able to release a lot of the pent up energy that I'm, that I'm having, or at least that's the way I read it. Right. I, it. It's not like neatly resolved, but it's resolved good enough. Yeah. It's a nice, it's a nice gesture at the end there. It's a nice feeling. And, uh, you know, hauling in that scene at the bar, he says, you know, if it makes you happy, Ed, like, I don't know if it's going to help me, but if it makes you happy, I think you should do it. And then what's nice is by the end, it's clear that it makes Holling happy. And that could just be because he sees that Ed is really wanting to help and really cares for him. And that's like a comforting uh, thing for Holling to see. Or yeah, maybe Holling is able to finally get himself in that mindset of the scapegoat that Ed is suggesting, even though a goat's not a fox and Ed's not a fox and Ed's not a goat. This is a symbol of trying to cleanse yourself uh, and in a lot of ways, Yom Kippur is a way of sort of trying to cleanse yourself of your sins, trying to hey, make, trying to atone and make things right before those gates of prayer close. So yeah, I think there's a um, bit of a Yom Kippur for hauling as well here, which is nice, a, a rebirth into a new year, perhaps. I don't know. I'm really trying to link it all together, but uh, but it does, it works. It works fine. No, 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 it definitely works. And speaking about trying to get into the gates before it closed, we get the very last moments of Lady Anne and Maurice, mm -hmm. where they got like, because it's like the butler of sorts. Yeah, <laughs> like, he's back in he's the backing up the car. Whatever, yeah. yeah. And the lady and, uh, you know, the vultures to Maurice saying like, you know, I really do like you. Like, I don't know. I don't understand why you are the way you were. And then Maurice says like, 
I, I just really didn't think I could match up with you because you're you, you're from such a different class mm-hmm. than me. And then she says, like, no, like, we're at, you know, at the end of the day, I'm still, I mean, she doesn't say, like, we're still human, but she, she says, like, you know, it doesn't really matter. She says um, uh, tabloids. She's like, haven't you read tabloids? Like, the last thing she says, I think, is like, forget everything you've ever read about British civility. So she's just trying to say, mm-hmm. like, you know, even the royal people are just, like, down and dirty, like, tabloid, you know, crazy people, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, they still participate in the fox hunt. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there you go. That's down and dirty, like, getting uh, getting your uh, your hands dirty there. And, um, yeah, I, I wrote down a couple of lines she said in this scene a girl doesn't travel half the world just to follow the hounds. Uh, and she says, I was hoping that you'd be a bit more forward. And yeah, as you said, Maurice was just kind of nervous about it, but at least now, unfortunately, like Raven, she's about to leave. They have a new understanding and Maurice can see uh, that kind of like what you're saying. It's like, they're just people too. At the end of the day, it's not, you know, they're royalty, but Nothing you have to like be intimidated by. I think I think Maurice was really intimidated a lot in this episode. They have a nice kiss at the end, and um, yeah, goodbye forever. I think I don't think she's ever going to come back to Northern <laughs> Exposure, but maybe back to Sicily sometime. Yeah, overall, like I said, uh, pretty big on the fox on. I think that's a <laughs> quirky little thing yeah. that you can have, but not not so big on Christmas Carol. Yeah, I can't think of any other show. I'm sure there, there's got to be something out there, but I can't think of many shows that have an episode about Yom Kippur. So I'm I'm happy that this occurred in 1994 and this was on like a show that was, I would assume, still decently popular um, at the time. I was looking at this actually um, earlier today is the ratings. You know, I don't know if the Nielsen ratings really mean whatever or anything, but- Oh, but it's cool. Uh, let's see, for this episode, it was 17.6, which um, I wonder if you could guess, I don't think you could guess it, but the highest uh, the highest viewership of any episode. Isn't it like in the 20s uh, or is it in the 30s? Or of, this, of this show. It's oh, in the, this it's show. It's in the 20s. Uh, it's in the mid-upper 20s. But do you know- Of this show? Yeah. Do you know which episode it might be or do you know- That's insane. That's a really good rating. Yeah. Um, it's got to be during its heyday. It's definitely not later. Yeah. So I would imagine that it's going to be, I, I honestly couldn't be able to tell you uh, the specific episode, but I'm going to guess that it's somewhere in season three. It is in season three. It is the episode Wake Up Call with 26.9 million viewers. Nice. It, it, the next runner up is the season four premiere, Northwest Passages at 24.9 million. And the show seemed to do a lot of like low 20s, mid 20s. Throughout the third, fourth, and fifth season. And uh, now with our season six premiere, it was 16.6 million. So kind of a drop. The season five finale was a huge dip at 14.3 million. Uh, Sorry to get nerdy about these numbers, but uh, (laughs) we don't ever crest above 20 million again in season six. And we'll talk about this later, but there is like a scheduling change in in the middle of season three where they go from like Monday night to Wednesday night or something. So mm-hmm. that's a thing as well. I mean, like, what, what, what did you say this one was? 7.8? This one was 17.6. Yeah. So if you take that and you look at today, the if we don't include football, <laughs> you get Young Sheldon. That's the highest rated one at 4.2. Wow. 7,135 viewers. Now, 
That is like yeah. the state of television now. And like Nielsen ratings, they, you cannot use that anymore. That is not a metric. Not with the streaming. Yeah. It means so little now compared to what it was back in those days. People would kill, even for those season six numbers, people would murder for those <laughs> types of numbers now. Like that is impossible to get. Yeah. it's pretty, It was, as I said, man, this was a pretty popular show. I don't know. I guess we'd have to compare it to other shows that were airing at the same time. But, uh, you know, this was a thing that people talked about back in the day. And I don't think anyone, I don't think a lot of people even know what Northern Exposure is today. All right, Lee, I feel like we have to, we have to talk about something. What is it, Charles? The thing is, is that we don't get all of the facts just by ourselves. That's true. We definitely use a wide <laughs> compendium of sources. We source from all over the internet. But one of the number one sources that we always return to Every single episode is moosechick.com. Moosechick.com, definitely. I mean, especially uh, earlier on in the podcast when, Charles, we were watching on the DVDs, a big thing for me was I was trying to explain to you that the original music had maybe been changed in some of those uh, some of those earlier DVDs or all the DVDs, and I didn't know what was what, so I was constantly referencing on moosechick.com. Uh, she's got tons of references there, tons of like for each episode, trivia information. And then there's a section on the original music for each episode. So you know what, uh, songs may have played. Uh, thankfully now we have like those Blu-rays, which I believe are kind of true to broadcast, but I always like to kind of check and see what, what's there. But yes, Moose Chick somehow amazingly, uh, thankfully is joining us today. We're very honored to have Moose Chick on the podcast with us. Uh, I guess we we just met her a second ago on this Zoom call, and uh, we know her as Geraldine now. Are you there with us, Geraldine? I am here. Thank you so much for talking with us, and also just thank you a million times for your website. As we said, like we use this all the time, and I even when we're not recording on the podcast, and even if I'm not watching Northern Exposure, if I'm thinking about it, I might hop on the site because there's a lot of stuff also on the sidebar. That's like, I went down a, uh, a deep hole once, like looking at all the scripts <laughs> that you have. And uh, right. there's, yeah, there's so many things on there, um, which I, I definitely want to get into, but maybe we could just start with, um, you know, talk about yourself and your history with Northern Exposure. Where did it start? Um, well, gosh, okay. I first um, caught it obviously in the early nineties. Um, I actually, ironically, was in Alaska. Whoa. I was visiting um, people in Anchorage and uh, we were trying to figure out something to watch on the TV and they were going by and I saw the show and I said, oh, wait, wait, I heard about the show. And I like kind of wrestled the remote away from everyone. <laughs> and it was um, Aurora Borealis. Wow. So it was actually the eighth episode of the first season. Wow. And I was like, this is amazing. And so I um, caught the others um, uh, reruns. And then, of course, by the time the second season came around, um, first two seasons were summer mm. only. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so caught all of those by rerun. And then and then it moved to uh, a normal season where it started in the fall, um, season three. And I had my VCR set. <laughs> um, I was in college. So Monday nights at 9 p.m. here in the um the Colorado, the Denver area, mm -hmm. um, it was like, nope, 
I don't care what kind of deadline I have. I am watching the show and, yes. um, and, and I watched it live in, but I did tape everything, which was the funniest thing. And I do actually still have those, um, videotapes. I can't remember what they're called. You know, yeah. the old thing. <laughs> the old square plastic. Even though I still say I'm going to video something, yeah. you know, and, and, and my daughter looks at me like, I don't know what you're talking about, mom. So. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's so cool. Alaska, in Alaska, watching Northern Exposure for the first time. And one of the greatest episodes, I love Aurora Borealis. And uh, yes, that's that's so cool. Yeah. So that was my first one that I saw. And I was just like, oh, wait, this is this is crazy. This is insane. And well, and besides, you know, actually having a taste of Alaska. Mm -hmm. I um, so I, when I was up there in the summer, I didn't obviously see um, the Aurora because the sun is up quite a bit of the time. It mm. just dips down a little bit. Um, and I happened to be there in June around the solstice. Mm -hmm. um, but I, um, after that, I had gone back in um, December to see the Aurora also. Oh, wow. um, and then was managed to keep it. It was like cloudy, 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 cloudy. And oh, suddenly cleared. We weren't even paying attention, but. <laughs> so from the TV screen down to your own eyeballs right there. <laughs> right. I, I yep. really have to ask this. Um, so when you were watching this in college and you said you were watching it live, you're mm -hmm. definitely dedicated to the show. <laughs> were there anyone else on campus that was also saying like, oh man, Northern Exposure, it's time for Northern Exposure. Or were you the only person on campus? Well, okay, so the funny show? thing is, oh, so when I first watched it, um, I did have friends who watched it with me mm -hmm. and, um, and, and they were probably not as dedicated. Like they nowadays, um, and I've kind of lost track of some of them, but they'd be like, you know, they're not going to Roslyn every year, which is mm -hmm. um, Cicely's real life stand in. Mm -hmm. um, it, and they're, you know, they're they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that show. It was pretty good, but they're not as focused as um, mm -hmm. as I am. But I had a professor. So I was a journalism student and I had a um, professor and it was um, it was a class on media and like entertainment. And he was obsessed so I was like, well, I have an easy A in this class because everything <laughs> I'm going to write about is no exposure. And I did write a paper and I have that somewhere. That's awesome. That is, that <laughs> but is it was it was like a, a like the end of semester paper on this on on Northern Exposure, and I was probably like you know fifty pages or maybe not that. <laughs> hey, if you if you have yeah. that, please send that over. I would love yeah. to read that. I think that's yeah. fascinating. <laughs> yes and no. I'm like, well, okay, so it might have been good. I got it, <laughs> but I don't remember exactly what it is. I'm sure I have. I have so much stuff. I just yeah, I don't know where it is, but it's 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 around here somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we can definitely tell that you love Northern Exposure because that led to you creating the website www.moosechick.com. And that sounds like a very old way of uh, spelling out your <laughs> website, but I want to keep it that way because I want right? to tell viewers, I want to I paint a picture with my words. When you click on this website, it's like a time capsule back to 2001. There is a graphic of a moose that's just walking. It's just looping perpetually mm -hmm. at the upper left corner. You have a customized wallpaper of like crinkled paper that was going mm -hmm. with the aesthetic mm -hmm. of the time. And then you have these little bars that you can click on, the links mm -hmm. at the side that are not like scroll down or anything like that. They're just placed right there. And that's exactly how I remembered the internet back when I was in like <laughs> middle school. Yeah, middle school, middle school, elementary school around that time. Oh, that's hilarious. Well, yeah, it is old school. I mean, when I started it, um, so I actually 
I started it, I had gotten laid off um, from a job. Um, but then the same company came back and said, oh, we'd, we'd love for you to temp for us because we still have a ton of work. We just can't afford mm. for you to be a full time, which was fine okay. because uh, sidebar, this is year 20, 21 years later, I'm <laughs> still freelancing in the same thing. Mm. So it worked out. It was a good thing. But in my, I suddenly had all this free time and I thought, oh. I'm going to make a little website. I'm going to make an episode guide. So it started out as just like a small guide and just kept building. But it was old school HTML. Um, I eventually got uh, started using Dreamweaver, which I still kind of use today to go in and make edits because it takes less time and there's less um, HTML code for me to try (laughs) to remember in my head. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So, but yeah, no, I, and I was like, and, and I have so many updates. It's funny that it's been 20 years because I have so many more articles. I have so many other updates. I have photos from the set, so many more things to add. I oh, just, wow. um, yeah. I need an assistant. That's true. Yeah, it's, it's already, it's grown into something like so big already. Yeah. Yes. Yes. One thing I noticed on the website that I was just starting to get into now, something I hadn't noticed, like. I guess I haven't dove into was uh, the fan gatherings tab. And I just wanted mm-hmm. to bring it up because I'm kind of living vicariously. I've, I've, we've Charles and I have never been to Moose Fest. Mm-hmm. And I know today it's maybe kind of scaled down. I think the past few years they've had sort of like, uh, you know, unofficial Moose Fests. But mm-hmm. I was wondering if uh, you could tell us a little bit about, because it's, it's Moose Fest and then there's Moose Days I see and Sicily Fest. What was it like? at that sort of heyday of the fan culture for for Northern Exposure back in the early 2000s, it looks like, late 90s? Uh, late 90s. Um, so in the 90s, I was on a lot of, um, I guess you'd call them chat rooms. It was like mm-hmm. AOL chat. Yeah. And um, there was something called the IRC. And I can't remember what that stands oh. for, but it was like, old i mean like i can't even describe it anymore it was so old school but it was just you know just you just chatted online with people we had a friday night brick thing that we met friday evenings and um but through these i discovered that there was going to be a um a fan festival in roslyn um the summer of 1997 and i I was like oh i've got to go and i remember Mm -hmm. telling my friends oh yeah no i know these people i've met them online (laughs) Now, this is in 97, and then they were like, "Um, okay, (laughs) are you sure you're going to, no, I know these people. And, and, and I did, I, you know, I met Mm -hmm. all these, put all these, uh, you know, faces to names that I had been chatting with for a couple of years at that point. Mm -hmm. And most of those people I am still friends with today. And so that's now. I can't do the math, but it's a long time. <laughs> so, we don't need to do that. So math. anyway, so I go to Roslyn and it was a huge fest. Um, there was, uh, so there were some people that were there from the show. Um, Iris Dement was there mm. and did a concert. Barry Corbin, of course, who played Maurice, he was there and he did a, a one man uh, theater show for us that, um, oh, I saw that, that he was doing at she the time. Posted. It was, a, um, oh my gosh, it was about a cowboy here, I it's actually was just while. reading that. <laughs> yes. Uh, Charlie Goodnight's Last Night. It was a one-man yes, play you said. Yes, He's so made. He's been uh, several times. So anyway, so that kicked it off. And then I I um, continued to go back every summer. It changed who was running it for a couple of years. And that's why it was uh, Moose Fest. Then it became Moose Days. And then it was uh, Sicily Fest. 
Um, and then in um, 99, uh, a group of fans formed a nonprofit that was called Friends of Roslyn. And they took over um, running the Moose Fest. And mm-hmm. so, and then I, I became involved with the um, the steering committee, the mm. the people who ran that. Nice. Um, and we did that for, yeah, so for many years. So our last big one was mm-hmm. 2018. The problem now is what has happened. Of course, we, uh, we, we started doing it where we're doing it every like two to three years, um, just to give people a chance to you know, save up for it. Cause right. 2015 and 2018, we had people from all over the world. Wow. It was, it was crazy. It was awesome. <laughs> it was like, yeah. you know, people from Germany and Finland and Ireland and Australia and Israel. And I mean, I, I, you know, met all these people and it was, it was fantastic. Um, but we also maxed out, um, how many people we could fit in the space that we did. <laughs> but Roslyn has had its own um, growing pains uh, mm-hmm. per se. Um, you know, Maurice's big resort outside of town has sort of made it a little bit more she-she. It's, it's a lovely, it's a great, great place. <laughs> yeah. But it's been harder and harder for us to pull off a Moose Fest. And so now Moose Fest is just that um, the fan uh, meetup, the what we call the um, informal informal um, gathering yeah informal fest uh we just it got to a point where we just can't pull off bringing that many people into town right um during the summer and and because it is such a popular tourist spot um and and it is it is a great place so i would recommend everyone go i mean i have maps which i do need to update um modernize a little (laughs) bit of to see things in town. And and then I'm, you know, I'm there in July. I'm I'm usually there in September too. I go at least twice a year now. Nice. And um meet different groups of fans. And so if we have newbies, we'll take you around. We'll go, oh, yeah, this is the this is the new event. So it was a great, it was a had a really long standing. We used to um earn money uh during auctions and, and other things from the fest and we give that back to the town. So we uh, you know, get to the library. There's an animal shelter there. There's the museum, which is fascinating. Because, I mean, Roslyn itself mm-hmm. is an old coal mining town. Right. So, wow. I mean, it, it has a you know, huge history before even Northern Exposure came along in the 90s. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it's it's just, it's an amazing, amazing place to be. Seems like a very beautiful place. And yeah, Charles, Charles and I, that's like our dream. One day, I think we just got it. We have to do this, Charles, at some point. Like, for, <laughs> like We got to record an episode over there. Yeah. I think it's really surprising to hear that it's only increased in fandom. I thought the end of your sentence was going to be, and then we stopped having people show up and, and you know, it's inevitably declining. But you're saying yeah. that there's people from all around the world. It's taking, yep. it's taking on an international flavor right here. I think that is so fascinating. But when you were living through Northern Exposure and you got through all the seasons, you were watching it during college <laughs> and post-college, could you feel the show getting out of the water cooler talk and being replaced with other shows? Or do you feel that like it still generally stayed around the hemisphere? Um, so I mean, it was real, it was, you know, really popular when it was on. And and you got to remember too, back in that time, we had networks. We had a few. We had cable, mm-hmm. but there, nothing like what we have today. We have too many shows on, mm-hmm. and and you, it's hard to find a fandom because it's like there's 50 million streaming sites as well as network and cable, and and you're like, oh, there's this new show. So, 
Um, you know, a lot of people did watch Northern Exposure when it was on. And even to this day, like I have a license plate holder that says something about um, Sicily, Alaska. And people go, oh, I remember that show. Mm-hmm. Or, or I'll bring it up in conversation. I try not to do that too often because, you know, <laughs> it's like, oh, well, this show. But I'll bring it up and go, oh, yeah, I remember that show. So it was it was an enigma because it was popular. It was different. And I don't know really if anything specifically replaced it. Right. I mean, there have been other good shows that are similar. There have been other shows that are similar that are not so good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's, it was, it's an, an enigma for sure. <laughs> so it's taking on its own distinct flavor right there. And I'm assuming that that's one of your favorite qualities about Northern Exposure. It's just that. It's really just itself. Like you really can't use another show or a word to describe Northern Exposure. Mm-hmm. What I'm trying to say here is that like, is that's what's drawing you to Northern Exposure itself throughout all of these years? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, sometimes you look at stuff and you thought, oh, maybe that didn't age well. I mean, especially I started showing my daughter who is um, <laughs> almost 15, uh, 80s movies mm-hmm. and thought, and like she'll turn to me and she'll go, mom. <laughs> that is totally racist. Or, or that is, you know, and I was like, yes, it, yes, it is. Yes. Uh, this did not age well. Okay, let's go on to the next uh, yeah. movie. But Northern Exposure, um, it, it did, everything stuck really well. Although, mm-hmm. you know, I sometimes I look at it, uh, you know, with other eyes. Like, for example, the Hauling Shelley mm-hmm. <laughs> um, age range. Right. And you start thinking about it, you're like, yeah, but it was never creepy and it still isn't creepy even though it you know in another context it might be really creepy but it's yeah it's um i don't know i think it i think it held on um there's a lot of stuff that i still see today and i'm like you know i'll see an episode and i'm like yeah yeah no that's still it still sticks with me everything it was great everything has aged well yeah, that's the Holling and Shelley seems to be what most of the our guests on the podcast who are, who, have, who are watching for the first time are like. Wait, I thought this was his daughter, but right. Um, but I'll piggyback on what you're saying. Uh, something that I'm always really impressed with about Northern Exposure is some of its progressive attitudes, and um, you know, it's hard to sort of imagine this, but I do feel like, I mean, Charles and I, we were kids in the nineties, but I do feel (laughs) like, uh, the show at the time was kind of ahead of its time in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. I think we have like some with like the bubble man in season four, Mike Monroe is kind of an environmental thing. We were just kind of talking about that in season four. That was kind of an early representation of that that sort of attitude um lots of things in northern exposure yeah i think there's a there's a popular youtube clip that i I kept getting recommended to me and i had like a couple hundred thousands of views but i think i want to say the the title of it is chris from northern exposure invents the iphone (laughs) (laughs) so good yeah there's a lot of things like that it's like predictive in a way yeah, uh, yeah, I have seen that one, and it's and I was actually just going to mention that I'm like, you know, yeah. It, it, so yeah, the writing was really, really good, um, and even though it was a ton of different writers, um, mm-hmm. there was sort of a core group, but then there were a lot of other ones. It just, it really, they they really did a good job with it. Yeah, kept it um, 
Well, up to this point, let's let's say that <laughs> up to where where yeah. our episode today. <laughs> All right, so. I want to let's get let's get into that. So we're here talking today about the third episode in season six, so far so good. And part of the reason why we asked you to come on to this episode, I mean, we definitely wanted to get you on here in season six. But uh, this is one of Moose Chick's top five favorite episodes. And um, I also was curious too, because I, I think uh, when I was emailing you, Geraldine, I was asking, has your top five list changed recently or does it change over time? Uh, you know, uh, tell us about this, your 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 favorite episodes and, and why maybe this is one of them. Um, well, they actually, they've stayed the same and I could never narrow mm. it down to one. So that's why I have a right. top five. <laughs> um, what is the top one in the five might rotate um, mm -hmm. during different times. Uh, I mentioned earlier, I do have a, a child. I have a daughter who is um, 14 and a half. Um, so one of my favorite episodes uh, was when Shelly give, gives birth oh, yes. and she meets her daughter at three times. That was my favorite episode, you know, when it aired. Mm -hmm. But when I... Um, was pregnant with my daughter that kind of moved up because I thought, well, you know, I can, I can relate to all this. And, and um, so, um, yeah. but I had, it's weird. Cause I haven't changed, even though I have watched the episodes many, many, many times, I mm -hmm. have not changed. What's the top five. I still, they, st yeah. I still stick to them. I still, I still really like them. And even though season six is, um, you know, have you heard maybe from the fan base is not our favorite. <laughs> <laughs> um, the beginning of it was okay. The, and, yeah. and I have two, two episodes right. in season six. You've yeah. got so far so good. And the, uh, premiere episode, which, mm -hmm. uh, you probably, if you're listening to this podcast now, you, you may have already heard Charles and I talk about it, but we were nervous this whole time getting ready for season six <laughs> and really floored. Like, I don't know. I, I was a big fan of the first episode. It's a pretty interesting one. Yes. But uh, but so far so good. Um, you know, do you are you a fan of a Christmas Carol or like what what sort of things do you like in this episode? Well, so the funny thing is is yeah, I I really liked. Um, it was it was really so between dinner at seven thirty, which was the the first episode of season six, and this yeah. one is really Joel. Like he grows immensely. I mean, he you know mm -hmm. he he's been growing over time, but now you really know that he's just like. He's he's getting it, um, you know. So far, so good. It's kind of showing him the error of his ways. He still has those those rough edges um, that where he's not fully Sicilian, but you know he goes through that. And I always mm -hmm. loved how all of the episodes, how there's there's um, you know a couple different storylines and how they're sort of seamed together. Um, this one, you know, is the story of well, it's Yom Kippur, but it's on a sort of a Christmas Carol basis, right. the past, present, future. But then also, uh, you know, Hauling is also coming to terms with um, how his daughter's turned out, um, you know, yeah. his daughter, Valerie, and, and she's just kind of a not so great person. And, mm -hmm. and how, you know, he came to that. And then, you know, the story of the scapegoat. And yeah. then Ed jumps in and like and offers to be Hauling's scapegoat and at the same time be something for the dogs because there's that third storyline mm -hmm. where uh, Ruth Ann's trying to have the um or no not Ruth Ann the uh, Maurice and um uh, oh I just forgot the woman the the English lady right lady are trying something. to have the yes lady lady Ann Reynolds 
Oh, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> I had, yes. I was actually, and I checked uh, your website to see. I know, I just checked my own website. I just, <laughs> I just well, have it on the other page. Yeah. But yeah, so they want to have uh, the the dog um, hunt um, and the fox hunt. And mm-hmm. um, they were like, no, no, we, we you know, the, save the foxes. And Ruth Ann steps in and it's like, nope, you're not going to do this. And, and then Ed, you know, fulfills that role of fox and um, scapegoat for hauling to, and it just, the whole thing kind of around this, I am not Jewish, mm-hmm. but I've always had kind of, and actually because of normal exposure, I've kind of had more of an interest in, in some yeah. of the things um, that are taught through it. And so, yeah, everything I've learned about um, Judaism, I've learned on normal exposure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe, maybe not, but yeah. Yeah. I, well, I was telling Charles, I so I was raised Jewish, and uh, yeah, I think I was. We were talking about this earlier, Charles. I'm just really excited that there is some uh, Yom Kippur representation in this episode because I can't think. I mean, I'm sure there's probably something that exists, but nothing comes to mind for me of like what is another episode of television about Yom Kippur. I mean, there's probably right? uh, very yeah. few, you know. <laughs> yes, is, exactly. <laughs> this is quite central right. to to this episode in Joel's storyline and as you said sort of in uh in Ed and Holling's storyline about that sort of atonement. Um I love that about I you know when I first started rewatching this episode, I was uh bummed out that we didn't get to see Holling's daughter, you know, come back cuz she doesn't oh. end up showing up. But I yeah. almost love that it's all more about Holling's um, guilt. You know, he's got he's got this sense of guilt, and so we get to really dig into that with Holling. Uh, you know, John Colum's actor, and I love that Ed is there mm-hmm. to help him out. And just the suggestion of being a scapegoat is so silly. But if you're watching Northern Exposure and you're a fan, if you're watching this episode, you totally buy it. Like it makes yeah. sense, and it's the totally the right thing to do. Uh, sorry, Charles, you wanted to hop in? Uh, yeah, I was going to say that, like, there is, now that I'm thinking about it aloud, uh, along with y'all giving your thoughts about it and trying to bolster what we just saw in the episode, mm-hmm. I named previously that I thought that tradition was the name of the game today, in mm-hmm. today's episode. Maurice in Oklahoma, Joel and Yom Kippur, Hauling and Abandoned Fathers, and the Fox Hunt, which is like the bow that ties it all together, because Fox Hunt's traditional strength is tradition. Like, mm-hmm. that's the reason why they carried out so long in Britain. But now that I'm thinking about it again, I think there's, like, this mixture of trying to keep the tradition, but then moving it forward. And what I mean by this is that Joel has this Yom Kippur, this uh, Jewish heritage to him, mm-hmm. but he relives it through a Christmas carol mm-hmm. right there. Mm-hmm. And then we see that the scapegoat that Ed uses it's not a goat. It's a fox that he uses, but he still takes like the bones mm-hmm. of what it used to be and tries to apply it in a more fitting nature of what it is in today's relevant times, or at least what mm-hmm. it is relevant in the town of Sicily right here. And that really goes with Maurice as well, because he's trying to get himself removed from those Oklahoma roots that he had mm-hmm. when he's trying to woo Lady Anne. But that's the part of him that she likes. She doesn't, right. you know, she doesn't need uh, anything new with there. So I think that like rethinking it out aloud, I think that actually does make the episode much more better because full disclosure, at least for me, and this is just personal how I felt. I don't know how Leah felt about it. This episode was not one of my strongest ones that I had ranked personally for me, mm-hmm. but 
this happens all the time. Whenever I talk about episodes with other individuals, especially other individuals that really like the episode, I usually almost always change my mind because they always present an argument in which I never saw mm-hmm. or something in which I didn't realize. They were just presenting a whole new perspective. And I can be like, oh, wait, hang on. No, they're right. Like this, this episode can be better. Like it is better. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. <laughs> I, I was only seeing it for my view. <laughs> I mean, that's, I guess that's also part of the, what's so great about a community of fans. Uh, and I mean, Charles, we get like to microdose this on a small level because it's you and me talking together on a podcast, sharing our thoughts. But you know, when you talk about it with other fans of the show, uh, even if it's something that you weren't really a, like a huge fan, like an episode that you didn't really like before, um, it just only it just only becomes better. Like your enjoyment is more enriched by others seeing things through what they're what they're taking from it. And it can, what's great about these episodes is it can mean a lot to to a lot of different people. Well, now that we have you also here for season six, I'm also really curious what made dinner at 730 like place in your top five. Um, Because it was a moment where Joel came back and, he, you know, he's at the end mm-hmm. of the, the New York dream and, and or alternate universe. And he says, no, no, I don't want this. Mm-hmm. And he returns to Sicily. And, and it was just, that was sort of the moment of this, like, he's a Sicilian. He, you know, he's, he's changed so much. And, and, um, and, and you'll see more of that as you go into um, season six, the good parts, um, you know, later (laughs) until he leaves, but it just, it was, um, and it was that, and then uh, talking about music earlier, that had to be one of the most perfect songs was, uh, it had uh, talking heads. um, I believe it's called naive melody. Um, You know, home is, home is where I want to be. And and that, Mm His home was Sicily now. And I was just, I, I don't know. It was something about that. I, I mean, I love the whole alternate universe. Uh, it was, you know, funny who, who, how they were related to him and, um, and, and who they became in the New York life. But it just, yeah, it was just that, that, that point when he got to, he said, no, no, I don't want this. And, and boom, and he was back in Sicily. And I just, that was, that was a, a pure moment to me, which, yeah. Is Northern Exposure has a lot of those, but that was one of those like, yep, no, that, that uh, that's going on the list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That ending is so simple and beautiful. And that music like really elevates it so much. It's so good. Yeah. And um, we talked about this on our episode, Charles, but we had like, we were just talking about how it's a, it's a really good opening for a season, but we also had a crazy theory of like, what if this was the season finale? Like that would be a pretty cool oh, ending yeah. too. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. My, it would have been better than the actual season finale, <laughs> but you haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking on that, because we, we've been yeah. talking about like, okay, well, we know that, you know, the wheels are about to come off the wagon right here. Yes. How you've seen this multiple times mm-hmm. in your life, Northern Exposure. I, and I'm honestly just curious, like what is your opinion of David Chase coming in, just changing what Joshua mm. Rand and John Falzia created. Well, um, you you probably know a little bit about the lawsuit that happened. Maybe, maybe not. Oh, tell um, yeah. Th- okay, so there was a lawsuit. Uh, a gentleman named Sandy Veith um, sued, you know, right? I guess Universal um, because it was too close to a, a show that he had presented to. Um, I did. Sort to of, I think the studio. Yeah. 
and again, I don't have all of the like facts mm-hmm. and figures in front of me, but at the, the it, he won. And at the time it was the largest um, settlement oh, of its wow. sort. So Northern Exposure, the show was really no longer making any money. And so David Chase essentially was hired to um, end it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you've uh, read Darren Burroughs books either. He also talks mm-hmm. in great detail about this um, in the book that he did. But he, essentially, that was why he came in. And so what started off as kind of fun and quirky and um, this town of Sicily, it, it, it jumped the shark, <laughs> as you <Yeah>. can say, <laughs> quickly into, into season six. And then um, uh, it kind of went downhill from there. And it was a huge disappointment to uh, you know all of the fans because we knew what it could be and what it had been. And it was sort of like a not a very dignified ending. So, so I, you know, I'd never watched the Sopranos and I'm not sure if it's just cause I, I had a right. grudge at that point. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I've really seen other things, um, but you know, he was quoted as, as you know, not liking Northern exposure at all. Mm-hmm. And that's hard to hear because it was such a, it was such a great show. It was unfortunate that, you know, that the lawsuit happened, um, to no no fault of the creators, it just happened mm-hmm. to be stuff in Universal and the studio that you know that was too close, and it just over yeah. time, you know, and and I'm not saying it, that you know lawsuits shouldn't have happened, but it was unfortunate, and I I think that was just um it was just it yeah. it it was almost like the magic was too good, and and something had to happen. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I thought I had heard something about a lawsuit, but I never. I never read into that. And mm-hmm. that is insane. I'm just like Googling Northern Exposure lawsuit. If you're listening yes. along, I'll, I'll link it or something, but there's like AP news articles, uh, you know, about this, about this that I can link, but I'm definitely going to read more into it. But yeah, that is, that is, like you said, so unfortunate when it's just something that it's like, there's enough there that, that are similar that you can't, you can't like honestly make everyone happy or like deny or approve. It's like, this is just yes. like too close here. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's wild. I, I feel like that's such a, almost like a corporate decision in my opinion to mm-hmm. kind of appoint David Chase in this. Cause you're saying that he's quoted and I, I knew this beforehand that he's quoted as saying like, I dislike the show that I am running. Mm-hmm. And if he's hired to euthanize this, then like, I guess it's like kind of fitting that he would not like it. So like he has no like greater attachment toward Towards the show, but then the other, uh, the obvious other side of the equation is like, well, think of the fans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Think of the people that worked on the show. Think of like the oh, hundreds yeah. of behind the scenes crew. That's their livelihood right there. And yeah. then just think of the actors that poured their soul into it. And that's just an insult toward it. But it's like from whoever is at the top mm-hmm. who's making the decision to say like, hey, I need this to end because now it's costing us nothing. It's not generating anything. Right. Mm-hmm. I need it to end in an undignified manner. I don't care. I just want it off the air. <laughs> and we're going to get somebody that also like just wants, shares our values. Yeah. yeah. I think that's such a dichotomy right here. That's like, uh, I mean, it's just wild to me to hear about that. And I, I don't know. Like I kind of. Kind of, I'm with you being like, I don't know mm-hmm. if I want to watch The Sopranos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I well, haven't seen The Sopranos either, but yeah. There and 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 don't get me wrong, there are there are some some bright spots out of it. It's just, um, mm-hmm. you know, it just it you will tell too after watching it for the last um, several seasons, you will you know go through and go, oh, this is a different side of of this character I've never seen before, or 
why did they bring this up all of a sudden? We haven't seen this ever before, you know, and it's, it's, there's just, there's a lot of that stuff. Yeah. I'm excited to see, uh, what happens in the podcast, Charles, and what, what, uh, yes. what your, what your, cause I, you know, I have, I, I know what happens already, but also <laughs> I was mentioning, this is, I think I've only seen this season six once before. Like I never really returned to watch it. So it mm-hmm. is kind of interesting to be rewatching it, um, knowing where it's heading and, Charles, uh, you are getting it fresh, so I'm really excited to see uh, your reaction to all this. But uh, yeah, maybe we can kind of like turn it to something a little more positive as we close out here. Um, I, I love just thinking about the the idea of this fan community watching Northern Exposure, and that's you know also partly why we wanted to in this season. You know, a season that maybe some fans might say is not not the greatest season of Northern <laughs> Exposure, but you know, we want to hear from the people who love Northern Exposure about Northern Exposure. So we're very grateful to have you on, Geraldine. But I wanted to uh, just before we close off, if, do you have any uh, advice for anyone listening to this podcast and maybe is just getting into Northern Exposure? Like, what are some great ways to reach out to the community? Obviously, your website has a lot of uh, links there, but um, I don't know. Yeah, you've obviously been, you know, fostering relationships, you know, for a long time through this show. But yeah, do you have any tips on fan communities online for Northern Exposure? Um, well, you know, I belong to a couple on Facebook. Um, mm-hmm. Probably one of the most um, active ones is called um, Club NX. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion in there. And there's, a you know, a few others up there. Uh, there's a K-Bear. Actually, there's a K-Bear 570.net. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and they play uh, radio Um Music, some right. from the mm-hmm. show and some inspired by, but they also do uh, episodes on Sundays and right. They do like the watch parties. Yes, yes. Nice. And so that's a great community. Um, when mm. they actually they have live DJs once in a while who do shows based on sort of like a Chris in the morning type thing, yeah. and there'll be a chat group kind of going while we're listening to the music and and um you know so that's been a really great thing and yeah we talk about the show but we also talk about we've just gotten to know each other so much. Um, but yeah, so mm-hmm. I, I think probably the most active one that I see these days is the Facebook one that I do. For sure. Yeah. Um, is that, that club at NX and, and, um, and yeah, and there's a K bear South, mm-hmm. um, which is another group. Uh, he's based out of Texas. So that's why he's South. Um, yeah. actually nice. he's an amazing person. You might want to uh, chat with at one point. He has built right. himself a K bear studio. Oh my gosh. And that's he awesome. has, um, a person from the show actually lives with him. So, oh, mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, yeah. no, uh, I've seen <laughs> I, I've seen K Bear South. And I think I've been mm-hmm. uh, on that group, but I, I don't know too much about the creator or the or the uh, members. Um, but yeah, I've definitely enjoyed that group. And yeah, I'll just agree. Like, I, I find that Facebook has a lot of great. Yes. Uh, groups online, and we we are also part of Club NX, and oh, that's right. I, I think we've I think we've talked about this on the podcast, Charles, but it's I'm just kind of always amazed that as you're saying, Geraldine, like it's very active. I think every day there's always someone posting and it's really interesting stuff. And it's kind of like blast from the past mixed with like people who are watching it for the first time and just noticing things, uh, something someone who's watched it millions of times and noticing something. And uh, 
It's a, yeah, it's a, that's a great community. And it's an international community. I, you know, there's, there's people from Poland, Turkey, and, and of course other people who've come in the past. So it's, if mm-hmm. you're still finding people from around the world who are just now discovering it or mm-hmm. have been watching it for a long time also. So it's, it, yeah, it's a great community. Yeah. I, I think that it's one of those things where when you take an experiment or you, you take a leap of faith and try to be very original with your show that has lasting power mm-hmm. throughout it. So if Northern exposure, I played it a little bit more safe, a little bit more closer and not towards risk with all of the, just all of the craziness that happens within <laughs> it on all the plot lines and all the flashbacks and all the vignettes and everything that are within it right there. It just wouldn't have the staying power that it does almost 30 years later. Mm-hmm. Maybe it just wouldn't, it would just fade away. Yeah. This show that has, Absolutely has never been on streaming services. <laughs> like that's usually the first yeah. Uh, that's the first indication in which your show is not gonna survive. It doesn't even have that, yet it's still popping, like you're saying. Mm, like it's yeah. still on Facebook, <laughs> doing very well, it's gathering international people toward there. And I think that's like really the more I think about it, the more I think like that is the number one thing I would write home about if I was Northern Exposure. That mm-hmm. is such an accomplishment. <laughs> For sure. Exactly. Well, Gerilyn, thank you so much for joining us. Once again, if you're listening and you still haven't seen moosechick.com, please go check it out. And I mean, obviously, it's been a great resource for us and I'm sure many others. And I was just thinking of something. It's not very, it's not very Yom Kippur centric, but uh, for the for the Passover, for the holiday of Passover, one of the things we say at the very end of the Seder is next year in Jerusalem. And of course, you know, it doesn't mean we're actually going to be in Jerusalem next year, but it's like, you know, one day we'll all be together united as a Jewish people. I think they may probably even, because I know they do a Passover Seder in, in an episode of a Northern Exposure, so they may mm-hmm. relate to this, or we've talked about that on the podcast before. But Charles, I'm saying next year in Sicily, one someday <laughs> we're going to be there with you, uh, Geraldine. We're going to go to this uh, a, a Moose Fest gathering. All right. Last weekend, last full weekend of July is usually when we're there. So boom, put it on your calendar. Thank you so much, Geraldine. We'll have to get you back sometime. Yes, thank you. All right, Charles. Next week is season six, episode four, The Letter. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to B-Ball Y'all for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Moose Chick for being our guest. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.